0: Talk. It's Doug Maurice. It's Nathan Baird. It's Stephen Means. We're doing rapid fire today as we prepare to talk to some people this week, including a bunch of Ohio State players. That is the plan, at least, uh, for us to talk to a bunch of guys on Wednesday. So we'll have hot, fresh information coming to you guys. And we are going to dig in. We have it slotted for the first one later this week, but dig in on both sides of the ball. We'll do a pod where it's Ohio State offense versus Georgia defense. Then we'll do um, Georgia offense versus Ohio State defense. The matchups that matter where the advantages are, what Ohio State fans should focus on going into that game. We'll have two big healthy pods where we really dig it on that uh, between now and when uh, things kick off in Atlanta for the Peach Bowl after Christmas. But for now, we did a call out to our tech subscribers. If you want to be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315 would be a good time to get in. And I like dreams. We will do a dream pod At one point, because I I bet a lot of you listening, I bet a lot of you and don't send them in the text or tweets right now because I'm going to lose them, save them for when we do a call out in the offseason. I bet you have crazy dreams about Ohio State football because it's a thing that you care about. And one of them happened to somebody in the 419. Just a weird dream. Last night, I dreamt that they made Ohio State play the Browns in a playoff game and the winner would play Georgia. I was on my honeymoon and had to hide that I was watching it from my wife. Well, anyway, the Browns won and then proceeded to get blown out by Georgia and everyone made a laughingstock out of Ohio. What nightmares are made of? Nathan, I do love the part of that. The Browns-Ohio State part is crazy enough. But the idea that in your dream, you're hiding your football fandom from your wife on your honeymoon. Just make sure 419 you and your wife talk this out, right? I mean, you know, secrets in a marriage, right? It's all okay. I mean, it's a, but I love, don't you love football dreams? I love football dreams.
1: I think what makes it a true dream, right? Because nobody just dreams, oh, I had a dream last night of the, Tigers and the Mets playing game five of the World Series. Like, just straightforward. Like, nobody dreams that. There has to be some weird wrinkle. And the fact that the, the Ohio State would have to advance through the Browns to even get the right to play Georgia, I think, was a great wrinkle. That's what makes it a true... That would, that's how you know it's a real dream. Because something in your head is yeah. battling with itself to make you think about that.
0: And the things that are battling are Browns' angst and Ohio State' angst. And they're colliding yes. in a nightmare.
2: So... Sorry, person. The Browns part of it is so much better because the Browns beating the the Buckeyes, I mean, yeah, they're a team full of NFL players, but the Buckeyes are a team full of some NFL players. That's supposed to happen. But you're so distraught by your NFL fandom that you also think a college football team can beat them. That's what makes it better.
0: You're like, I'm pretty sure Georgia can run on this Joe Woods defense. I don't think they can stop Kendall Milton. I just don't. So, yeah. Sorry for the angst. It's all okay. We'll all share dreams sometime down the road. All right. This is a Paris Johnson question to start this off. This is from the 440. How important is it for Paris Johnson Jr. to go in the first round? Ohio State hasn't had a first round tackle picked since Taylor Decker in 2015. So Nathan, this is one of these things where, again, a lot of times the answers are just comparing Ohio State to itself. And it's like, oh, do you think it matters that they have a lot of draft picks at receiver does that matter when they're recruiting receivers does it matter that what Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields did when you're and then you go to places where Nathan they haven't had the same kind of NFL draft success you know Nicholas Petit Frere just got drafted last year right Thayer Munford just got drafted it's not like they haven't had tackles drafted Jamarco Jones got drafted Isaiah Prince got drafted Isaiah Prince was on the Super Bowl team last year but they haven't had first rounders since Taylor Decker right what do you think it would mean, what Paris Johnson and his success? And I think you could throw Dewan Jones in there. But again, we're talking first round. What might that mean for Ohio State going forward?
1: I think it might mean a little something. I mean, first of all, the, the most important thing was that Paris Johnson played like a first rounder this year, regardless of where he actually gets drafted. I think that that was what Ohio State obviously needed the most. But you're right that this is not something that they can sell the way they can sell it at other positions. And to say that, like, we'll make you the next Nicholas Petit Frere, which is you get drafted in the fifth round and you go to a team that doesn't really have other great tackles and then you'll win the tackle job. Like that's a th- That doesn't get guys juices flowing in the recruiting realm. Right. They want to hear that you're going to make them a great player, that you're going to make them an All-American and a first round player. And to to, to recruit at the at the top level. And everybody's going to say that. But when you can demonstrably show that you have done it are doing it. I think that's the the crucial thing. They do it at other positions, and there's some important positions where they're drifting away from it as well, whether that's cornerback, uh, especially of late. I think they need to, to get some positive momentum there too. But offensive line is the one where the hole has just kind of been obvious as far as top-level performance, and uh, I, I think it does mean something if they can start getting some checks back in that category.
2: We talk about that a lot, the art of especially with these five-star recruits, the first job is to get them in here and then it's to develop them into five-star players and five-star draft picks, which typically means first rounders. Nicholas petit frere was actually rated higher than uh, Paris Johnson was in terms of what their you know, star rating was. And as Nathan just said, he's a fifth rounder who goes to a team who, I mean, there wasn't going to be much of a competition because he was better with, than what they already had on the roster there. It, I do think they need the other side of that because we're seeing it that wide receiver. Brian Hartline has been elite at getting those wide receivers in the door. And now starting with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, we're seeing the other side of that sentence, which is, can you turn me into a first round draft pick? And that sit. And once you start doing that, then you have a, a kind of an assembly line going on here. And that's what Kerry Combs for a long time had at corner. That's what Larry Johnson for a long time had at defensive end, especially. And it's what the assembly line that's going on at quarterback right now is you're getting the high end talent, but then you're also producing it at a high level at the NFL draft. So, Ohio State actually hasn't had a problem getting a five star offensive lineman. Before 2022, they'd had one in like five straight classes, but none of them were first rounders. Now I'm eliminating Harry Miller from that conversation because obviously real life got involved there, but they haven't, they've gotten these five star recruits in here, but haven't turned them into five star, you know, NFL prospects. And Paris Johnson, even if it is a kid from your backyard, him combined with what they've done with DeWan Jones can start to change that going forward. And we'll see starting with this. 2024 class and 2025 class if that has any payoff especially because Justin Fry basically did it in a year
1: I think the Dewan Jones thing is important because that's a different thing even if he isn't a first rounder that's a different developmental thing you get to sell Paris Johnson came as a five-star came as one of the top prospects in the country regardless of position he came here as a guy who people thought was going to the NFL DeWan Jones came here as a, a mystery and Ohio State turned him into I don't think he'll be a first rounder but I mean he's He's in all-American conversation and um, ended up having a pretty fantastic career here.
0: NPF, a third-round pick,
1: by the way. So um,
0: I like the first-round stuff matters. You go through, you go go through. You know, they have the big wall in the hallway of all the NFL guys, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of receivers up there. There's Zeke's up there. Got running backs up there. J.K. Dobbins. You got. Corners up there. And they, you know, Taylor Decker's up there. Corey Lindsley, who was not, who was a mid round pick and has made a boatload of money in the NFL because he's been so good, is up there. I do think, you know, first round pick, that's status. Money is status. And also, the thing about money, money is also money. So Andrew Norwell went undrafted, but has made tens of millions of dollars at Ohio state. If they're bringing in an offensive lineman could point at Andrew Norwell and say, who cares where he was drafted? Look at the money he's made. He came to Ohio state. He was an all big 10 player here. We developed him. Look what he did. Look what he's done with his life. But I do think the shorthand of first round picks, they'll make a graphic of it, right? I mean, if we've seen it, Oh, Ohio state receivers, first round or cornerbacks, we talk about all the cornerbacks they've had in the first round, right? It's a shorthand. They don't have that shorthand at, 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 on the offensive line right now. So I do think Paris, Paris in reality, I think you make a good point, Steven, that it's, it's not that they haven't, cause I, there's two things here. It's not that they haven't had highly rated recruits on the offensive line. That it's not like that's been a huge gap, but right now, this very second, we've been having conversations for 12 months about who are their tackles. And so right now, today, you could, if you made a life size cardboard cutout of Paris Johnson and it just lived in the back of Justin Fry's car, and every time he drove to the living room of an offensive tackle recruit that they need, they need to get some more of them right now, you set that up in the living room and pointed to him and said, First team All American, top 15 NFL draft pick. Here's his rookie contract. Here's all the things he accomplished on and off the field, Stephen. There's a past conversation and there's a, what are you selling right now to the tackle recruits you need? And the number one thing, I think the number one thing, because and, and Nathan, like the point you made, there's two things we talk about. There's, de- there's developing the under the radar guys, but there's also developing the guys who are supposed to be great and then are great. So they're going to get some of the under-the-radar recruits anyway. You're trying to go sell a five-star. You're trying to sell the next Paris Johnson, Steven, That you need right now. And Paris Johnson is a success story from entry point to exit point. In, competed as a freshman, guard starter as a sophomore, tackle starter as a junior, all-American, a success on and off the field, NFL draft pick. Stephen, that, that is like in the NIL world especially, right, where money is at the forefront. That's a, well, okay, NIL matters, but by Mm -hmm. the way, let's talk about Paris Johnson first round money. That dwarfs NIL money. Mm -hmm. I I think Paris could have a very tangible effect on the 2024 offensive tackle recruiting for Ohio State.
2: And it's like, hey, I did this with Paris Johnson, and he only has 12 games of being a left tackle. So imagine what I could do with you if you spend your entire career as a left tackle, even if you only start for two of them. Even Panay Sewell. Who was this big time, viewed as generational NFL draft prospect as a tackle? He needed another year. He came back for another year at Oregon, and right now he's playing right tackle for the D- Detroit Lions. Paris Johnson, Justin Frazeau pitches. Paris was playing guard his last two years. Even if we all knew he was a tackle, he was repping at guard and didn't really start repping at tackle until January, twelve months ago. And in twelve games, he's turned himself into he was very close to being an Outland finalist, and he's a he's made some all, first-team All-American lists. He's already got his tree, and he was second-team All-American with AP, which came out, we're recording this on a Monday, I believe. So he's made some All-American lists, and he's probably going to be a top 15 pick. So it's, I did all that with J- Paris Johnson in 12 months. Imagine what I can do with you in three years.
0: I maybe would leave out the part where they made him play guard. I would
2: maybe well, leave Well, no, no, out that's the, But he didn't do that. Justin Fry is not the reason he was playing guard. That's right. The other guy made, it,
1: made yeah. him play guard. I made him
0: a tackle. <laughs> You'll play no, you, you. Oh, no, you're a tackle. You'll play tackle <laughs> the whole time. We don't even we, we, we literally don't even have tackles. We literally have no tackles. You're the tackle. You're fine. It's fine. It's fine. But look at the cardboard cutout with the dollar signs on it. All right, Nathan, this is a question about Ohio State being its own worst enemy. I always find the Ohio State standard of Ohio State living up to itself to be a fascinating topic, and this is a version of that from the 614. Is Ohio State its own worst enemy? Maybe we just micro-analyze this team to death. Maybe <laughs> five days a week.
2: Come on, man. Maybe,
0: maybe. But every loss always seems to come seems to come down to what Ohio State did wrong and not what their opponents do right. Georgia is a perceived juggernaut, but I still feel like this championship opportunity is Ohio State's to lose. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So let me give my real quick off the top there are definitely examples i think in the recent past where you would say well that loss for ohio state was really about the other team it really wasn't about ohio state now i think the 2016 clemson game is that the way they lost is was about ohio state which is why they made changes the fact they lost to deshaun watson As Deshaun Watson was on a revenge tour to beat Alabama in the national championship game. I, I don't know what you were going to do there. There were people who picked Ohio state to win that game. And it was like, ah, I like, have you guys watched Deshaun Watson play? Like he's pretty good. So. I think a better version of a better version of Ohio state with more competent offense competes in that game, but I don't know that they were going to, that almost any version of Ohio state was going to win that game. And then I do you think the 2020 Alabama, like Alabama is a super team. And I understand in the COVID year and then, oh, Trey Sermon and Tommy Togia and the guys they missed that day. I don't know what the version of Ohio state would have been that would have beaten Alabama in that national title game. When you had Devonte Smith and Najee Harris and Mac Jones and all those defensive guys. And by the way, Nick Saban's the coach. So Nathan, those two stand out to me, but I think what the, what the texture is getting at here is Ohio state has such talent that they don't run into very many teams where when you do the talent matchup, you're like, oh, well, pfft, no chance for them to win. And that creates an impression of, oh, Ohio State must have done something wrong here.
1: Well, but also, like, it's some of this is just the nature of what we do. Like if they were to go read the Associated Press version of the game story from – the Michigan-Ohio State game, it would be a lot about what Michigan did right to win that game, right? But if you come listen to an Ohio State podcast and all the other Ohio State podcasts and read all the other Ohio State coverage, it's going to be much more about what Ohio State didn't do. So some of that is is a little bit the nature here. But I think it would be a good point to bring up that if we're if it's starting to sound like we're talking about the Peach Bowl that way, I guess I would just say, for the record, that I think Georgia is clearly demonstrated to be the more complete team, and Ohio State will have to upset them. Ohio state has to prove it is as good as Georgia at this point.
0: I think that's fair. And I think I don't, I would say, I don't think. How do I say this? Steven, I would be surprised if after the peach bowl, I think to myself, well, Ohio state blew that. Right. Uh, Maybe, maybe I don't, maybe you wouldn't think, wow, they got swarmed by a superior talent team and they had no shot. Maybe not that, but I, Georgia is good enough to me that I don't think there is an expectation of, like, well, Ohio State better win this game. But you seem to be thinking maybe you think it's closer to equal, though.
2: I think it depends on what the loss looks like. I think if Ohio State gets blown off the field, I think it will look a little bit more like what Ohio State did wrong because it's going to look a lot like the other things they've been doing wrong the other times they've lost. I, you brought twenty 2016. I'm just going to start with when Ryan Day got to Columbus because he's been a part of seven losses since he's been here. There are probably two that are defensible. And it's 2019 Clemson game, where well, that's a competitive game, dude. And it just comes down to miscommunication football play. There's not I mean, Chris Olave don't break the ro- route off. Ohio State wins that game. You can't have it any everybody you you put your best foot forward and you just lost. You can live with that. And even Bama, I know a couple pods ago I talked about the fact that the offense didn't show up, which I still believe didn't happen. I don't blame the defense for giving up 50-plus points to Alabama because of all those names that you listed off earlier. I do blame the offense for not doing at least its part and at least trying to make it competitive. All the other games, whether it's 2017 Iowa, 2018 Purdue, uh, Oregon and Michigan last year, Michigan this year, something Ohio State didn't do something that was clear and evident and that we talked about all season. And then it showed up that day and it ended up being the ultimate problem. Even the Michigan game this year, as much as it's like, oh, a blown assignment here, the cornerbacks did not cover well. That's a lot of those big passing plays where somebody did, somebody messed up in coverage, even if it was a backup, somebody messed up in coverage. And so there is a feeling there that is, I think part of this question is, is Ohio State going to put its best foot forward? And I know we're talking about this as if Ohio State's going to have to upset Georgia. Yeah, because one's the number one seed, one's the number four seed. But what if the offense does what it's supposed to do? Ohio State has the better offense than what Georgia has. Georgia just has the better team. So what if uh, Ryan Day said it, he put a number on it, 40. And I did a, a whole po- a post about it. 259 games since 1904, Ohio State scored at least 40 points, and they have not lost a single one of those games. All of Ryan Day's losses here, whether it's as an assistant or as a head coach, it's been under 30. So we can talk about this is upset and George is clearly the better team and look how good George has looked all year. But what if a passing attack that's supposed to be the best in the country does what it's supposed to do on December 31st? What should that game look like? If Ohio State loses that game 35 to 30, okay. Georgia was better than you. You lost a football game. If Georgia beat you forty-five to seventeen or forty-five to twenty-four, we're going to do the exact same thing we did after the Oregon game and what we did after the Michigan State, I mean, the Michigan game, where we're going. uh, what's going on here? Why didn't the offense show up? Whether we're blaming CJ Stroud, the offensive line, the wide receivers, or the play calling.
0: But also, the Georgia defense would say, "We're the Georgia defense. We're supposed to stop Ohio State." I mean, I do it, think that's, this is yeah, the best that's a defense in the country.
2: Here. Yes, right. It's, I it's, mean, so, like we have to. Yeah,
0: it it is a tough world to live in where you're kind of expected to win, <laughs> kind yeah. of expected to win every game, because I do think, you know, I don't know that we thought it going into the Michigan game last year, and clearly Ohio State had problems that they did wrong, especially on the defensive side of the ball, but offensively, it's like, oh, well, I don't know, like last year against Michigan, it's like, what happened? It's like, I don't know, did Aiden Hutchinson happen? And Aiden, Aiden Hutchinson is having like a great rookie year in the NFL, and he was the best defensive player on either team Um, and David Ojaba was impactful and they had some guys who could cover and they, you know, they had talented players as well. I I do think Nathan, that it is a, 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 again, it's the tough, it's a very tough world to live in, but it's also the burden of, of high standards that, um, I, I do think at times perhaps we under underestimate the talent of Ohio State's opponents, even if it's not equal talent, you know, but to say, well, Ohio State did do things wrong there, but also, you know, and this is like individual specific examples, but like also Rondale Moore did some things well in that game that were going to be a problem for a lot of teams. And David Blau did some things and Josh Jackson did some things in the Iowa game and TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant did some things in that Iowa game that they would have given lots of teams problems that day. And Aiden Hutchinson gave everybody a problem. Last year, And Hassan Haskins was a load to tackle for everybody last year. And so, um, but I do think, Nathan, the general idea of the standards of Ohio State are so high and the talent level is high enough that you feel like there's not a, Ohio State has the ability to win basically every game it plays, maybe short of the two I mentioned off the top. They have the ability to do it. And then that creates a world where if you don't live up to that, is it your fault? And maybe I think in general, we can, at times, not as an excuse for Ohio State, but lean more on what Ohio State did wrong, because they certainly did, and maybe not quite as much on what the other team
1: did right, when they also did some very good things on on, on a
0: day in which you beat Ohio State.
1: Yeah, I I understand where this texture is coming from, but I would also say, as a fan, this is really where you'd rather be. Um, you don't want to be one of the programs where it's just like, well, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to beat Ohio State? Like, come on, Like, go look at those, go look at the players. Like, we don't, we can't do that. At Ohio State, it's not supposed to, you're not ever supposed to be able to say, well, the other team just had more good players. Because if you're a fan of Ohio State, you're like, wait a second, why did I fill your 100,000-seat stadium? And why did why are we paying a coach $9 million? Like all this other stuff, you know what I mean? Like you're not supposed to – that's not supposed to really be on the table, even if that's not realistic. So I get where fans come from when they – when it sounds like that to them. I would just say that I think it's important to, to – I think it, it – it's already happening even a little bit with the Michigan game, the way we've talked about the Michigan game, because now you've got a situation where one of these teams is – it's shifted. It's not – you can't talk about Michigan the way you used to talk about Michigan or how State was expected to beat them. Now it is a much tougher thing to get on a field and beat them. And I would just have that that sort of um, adjustment in your mind at all times, that there are the, there are those teams that it makes sense to just say – why didn't we blow them off the field? And that means something's wrong. And then there's other times where you get on a field against another great team and they beat you that day, but 10 times out of 10, they maybe don't beat you. It's just you're equated and that's the way it worked out that
2: day. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just, I mean, these are, it was with the Georgia Ohio State game specifically, I, I, I'm interested to see what people's vibes are. If there's this vibe that it feels like a Georgia's got to wipe the floor with Ohio State, because these are two of the three most talented teams in the country And I get it. Some of that's recruiting and they're on the field now, but Ohio State's playing a lot of that talent. It's not like a year ago where the bulk of the thing that's pushing that talent rating up in that composite are a bunch of two freshmen who aren't playing. The only – Two guys who are five stars on this roster, three guys, excuse me, who are five stars on this roster who aren't playing meaningful snaps for them are Kyle McCord because he's a backup quarterback and then Sonny Styles and CJ Hicks. And a year from now, all three of them will probably be in that mix. And so it's it's hard for me to get there yet. I understand I've seen what Georgia has done all year, but I just it's, it's less about Ohio State should win every game and they should at bare minimum compete in every game. And their losses have been so – at least the final st- score has often been one sided in the last seven losses. It hasn't looked like, if you just looked at the base box scoring. Really, if you look at the game in totality, outside of the the Clemson game and then this year's Michigan game, when it just you know a couple big plays at the end there blew it open, those other games didn't feel like they were competitive. It looked like they just got blown off the field in different ways every time. But still, that should never happen when you have this much talent. And I think that's more the issue than Ohio State should win every game
0: for me, at least. The, the the thing that like, stands out for me, the thing that's in my head right is Mike Williams against Ohio State in the 2016 Clemson game. He had six catches for 96 yards. I thought he had like 25 catches for 1,000 mm-hmm. yards in that game because when they were throwing him passes, I was like, well, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I like Denzel Ward. The guy covering him is going to be the number four pick in the draft in the year. But right now, I don't know what anyone is supposed to do when Deshaun Watson is throwing a pass to Mike Williams. How does anyone stop that? And that defensive line for Clemson that had all those draft picks, right? It's like, okay, Okay. well, I guess you should be able to block them, but really should you be able to, I don't know how anyone deals with this. And that kind of thing of when you walked away from that game, again, 31, nothing required changes and changes came. But the general idea of, oh, no, cause again, going into that game, it was about a toss-up. I remember people were pretty split, I think, on that Ohio State-Clemson game. And then you walked away and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. That was clearly Clemson was the better team there. And so, you know, stuff happens. So I do think um, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated. I saw the very early picks. I think CBS Sports, because I looked there, because J Haraja works there, from the College Football Survivor Show, they did their, like, initial picks of their, like, 12 or 15 experts or something. And I think like only one person picked Ohio state. And I was a little surprised by that. Cause I, again, I thought my guess, my gut was sort of like, as we get closer to this and everyone's making their national picks, maybe it's two thirds, Georgia, one third Ohio state. My my guess is that it's not going to be, 65 people picking Georgia and two picking Ohio State, but we'll have to see. So I do think, I'll I'll be curious what that national perception is of this game as we get a little bit closer to it. Um, Let's do, there's one more that was kind of like this that I think is worth talking about now. From the 4-4-0, I would really love to see a survey or hear your feelings, maybe we'll do a survey on this, about this team compared to the Ohio State team after the 2020 Big Ten Championship game. I think I felt worse in 2020 than I do now, which is interesting. I think there are a lot of similarities between these teams. Run game concerns, defensive concerns, poor performance in the game before facing a major foe. I really thought we had no chance of beating Clemson after that Northwestern game, Nathan. And I'm more optimistic for this team against Georgia this year. That general idea of going into the playoff feeling like, I don't know. Do you think there's some comparisons between 2020 and now?
1: I I think so, but I think it's because out of that Big 10 championship game, you just played an inferior opponent and lost half the game. Like no question Northwestern was the less te- lesser team of those two teams. And you don't know how bad people are banged up and you're on pins and needles cuz you think every time your phone buzzes it's me texting you to tell you that somebody else has covid. And it's like I can I think it was probably a horrible time to be a fan of a team that was in a chance to win a national championship in a lot of ways. Like it was probably a hard thing to enjoy as much as I'm of the opinion like, hey, you try to find a way to enjoy this stuff. That was probably a hard thing to enjoy. But the mission losing to Michigan, as much as people hate it, I think you can put it into context of a bad day in a way that that Northwestern game where you get bailed out by an all-time performance from the line and Trey Sermon makes you probably wonder if you should even be on the same field as Clemson going into that game. I understand why people were thinking
2: that way. Steven, what do you think of that comparison? I get it, but we were also at a point that year where anytime Ohio State put a photo out of practice, we were trying to see who was in the background and see who was actually available or not. So I think that one had just as much to do with We could barely beat Northwestern when we were missing guys. How are we supposed to beat Clemson when we're not even sure if Chris Olave is going to play? And Baron Browning's not playing. All these guys are – I think it was more of that than any – and plus Justin Fields from the Indiana game on kind of fell off a cliff for a little bit there. But that one had so much more context, while this one just feels like Georgia's the best team in the country. They're reigning national champions, and they just put 50-burger up on LSU while Ohio State's struggling to beat Michigan.
0: I, I do, I am curious, and, and and we'll try to do some kind of survey for next week as we get to into more of the breakdowns. The idea of a month or so to prep for a great defense, and that's for both Ryan Day and the entire offensive staff and for the quarterback. And that we saw the Justin Fields, right? The Justin Fields from the Big Ten Championship game to the Justin Fields who played Clemson was... Nathan, that's—I mean, what is that? That—that that is, and yep. that is not that. It's not that anyone didn't think Justin Fields had that in him, but the actual performance he put on the field was ten times what it was. And so, with a month, with CJ locked in, with Ryan Day locked in on this, and they're trying to—you know—they're the, figuring it out. That idea of could you see that kind of thing of like not that CJ was was bad against Michigan, but like you know it was just was he peak peak peak? What if you get the peak 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 quarterback performance? and, and, and play calling performance, then I think you have a, you have a chance for it to be like it was against Clemson.
1: Yeah. This Georgia team, this Georgia defense is better than that Clemson defense was. So by a a decent chunk, I think, but also that was a year where much like the revenge tour, they were trying to go on this year against Michigan. That, that game had been building for a year too. They unleashed a year's worth on Clemson in that game too. And this game has you can maybe make some parallels here. It's just a shorter time frame that this team has its back against the wall a little bit in terms of, you know, pride and reputation. And you've got a, a month to, as Steven, the, the phrase Steven's using before, like putting your best foot forward. Cause that didn't happen the last time people saw you on a field.
2: I think the month thing is actually an interesting thing because it's, I don't think it just applies to that 2020 Clemson. I think it applies the year before, because if you remember that 2019 big 10 championship game, that first half was hot. I mean, Wisconsin was winning at halftime. And then even last year, you you had a, a month and some change to prepare for Utah. The offense wasn't a problem. The defense just was terrible for the first you know, 45 minutes of that game. But that is interesting. Not only do you have a whole month, but you have an extra week because you didn't play in the Big Ten championship game. And even if you didn't know who you were playing, you're already putting some of that – you know, some some of your game plan is already starting to be put together for whoever you're facing, whether it's a Big Ten championship game or you're headed to the Orange Bowl or the Rose Bowl. So that is interesting to me, that kind of balance of are you at your best, but how do you also balance not overthinking it because you do have that much time?
0: The hard thing for me about it is I do think it's different when you have a month to prepare as opposed to when you're just in the midst of a season and you have six days to prepare. But Ohio State also kind of was preparing for Michigan for a year and then did not play its very best game. So that's the part of the equation that throws me off a little bit because there's a part of me that thinks, okay, well, you know, these are highly paid coaches. They're going to buckle down. They're going to find ways for them to attack an opponent on both sides of the ball, and this is where you make your money. But it's also like, well, then why? Why didn't that happen? Why didn't they play an A-plus game against Michigan? Because even though they were playing games every week, We all know what the focus was. So, um, but I, but I still do think you can take something from the idea of this team has played better in its first playoff game or bowl game or whatever, compared to its last regular season game, whether it's the big 10 championship game or whatever, multiple times, multiple times, you would say going into the December, you're like, I don't know about these guys. And then when they get on the field in late December, you're like, oh no, oh, that was pretty good. So I do think that informs to some degree what we're talking about here. All right, quick break. When we come back, we're eventually going to make starting lineups for the Georgia game for the entire Ohio State roster. We did this in the preseason and made the uh, starting lineup for the first snap against Notre Dame. We'll do a version of that next on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back. If you'll be a tech subscriber, you won't get to send in questions like this, get to do surveys, get little news and analysis nuggets from us, 614-350-3315. We'll do this before we do the starting lineup thing from the 480. Are the Georgia and Michigan games the type of games where Jim Knowles really could have used Court Williams, and that does that mean that Sonny Styles could play a role as a big safety for the tight end that Georgia has in this game, which we did talk about on our Guys Who Could Pop podcast. I have been on the Court Williams bus for a while, Payne. But it feels like he would have been perfect for this. Safety, speed, and built like a brick to tackle in space and cover the avatar tight ends that Georgia has seems like a better option than Styles, who should still be in high school. So I will say this is exactly where I was in late August when I wrote 14 stories about how Court Williams was the key to stopping Michael Mayer. And then he didn't really play, and they stopped Michael Mayer anyway. So, no. <laughs> Like, having gone down this road, having driven the bus, having seen Lathan Ransom emerge as the safety that you should have been driving the bus for this year, and then Court Williams had an injury, Nathan, he was okay for the Notre Dame game and then was not really part of the game plan. I mean, I asked 1,400 questions. It was my number one thing in the preseason. You're not going to play three linebackers. He's the third linebacker even though he's really a safety. And then that's just not what they did. I don't know that they would have done that, but as we've talked about again already to some degree, I do think the way in the end the Michael Mayer plan was not people, it was scheme. It was a plan, it wasn't a person. And I do think that to me, that's what I'm thinking. I think that's what applies to this Georgia game as well. It's not really about an individual defender. It's about Jim Knowles doing multiple things to try to make sure they have two guys and two different guys dealing with Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. But, but I don't know that if Court Williams was, was healthy, this would have been the magic Court Williams game, because I think we already have an example of when
1: that wasn't true. Yeah, I was going to say that I don't know if we got to the end of the year, as much as we talked about it, as much as we had our eyes and ears open for it, I don't know if we got a great sense still. Of where a healthy Court Williams sits on this roster, if you're going to judge it based on just that one game, it would tell you that he was behind. Obviously, Proctor came in, or I'm sorry, uh, um, Ransom came in for Proctor early in that game as the Bandit, so it showed you where he stood in terms of just that position. Um, but he also, it sounds like the health thing was kind of recurring all year, so I, 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 I'm still a little bit not sure where he stands when he's fully healthy, but I. I would also say I'm, as we talked about on that other pod, I think the dynamic here is different. It's I don't know if it's a if you can make a perfect parallel between how things went against Mayer or how things went against another team with one really good tight end, because Georgia's doubling that up. I I it's you I think Ohio State needs to to maybe to make a bad analogy. You know, Ohio State last year we saw going into that year, man, you're gonna play like this. This run of really good defensive ends, right? Like Boya Mafe and George Karloftis, and all these teams that had like one really good rush end, and Ohio State neutralized all of them. And then they got to the Michigan game, and it all folded in on them. Michigan had two of those guys, so maybe it's not a perfect analogy. You're talking offense and defense, but this is a different this is a different challenge than just trying to stop one of those guys. You've got to count for two of them on the field at all times. Maybe the well, Utah game last year is actually the better example, and Utah was able to put up a lot of points.
2: Yeah, I, well, I do agree with you that they finally played two good dressers, but you know, Aiden Hutchinson had three of those four sacks. But your, your point still stands. I am well, out on the Court Williams conversation because, I mean, they picked Lathan. We we spent the entire offseason, when guys were fully healthy, especially in fall camp, when they'd go ones and twos, we'd see with the runs, it would be Josh Proctor, Ronnie Hickman, and Taylor McAllister. And then with the twos, it would be Lathan behind Hickman uh, Court Williams behind Josh Proctor and Cameron Martinez behind Tanner McAllister, then we got on the game day where it, it actually matters. And when it was time to pick somebody because Josh Proctor wasn't getting it done, they didn't go to the guy we saw with the twos the entire time. We saw Lathan Ransom come on the field. So it's that plus, yes, he's dealt with a lot of injuries, um, which is part of this. I think we have it's, – it's almost reached the point where with Court Williams, it's more about his leadership than some of his play sometimes because he's been hurt all the time. And that stuff is great, but they play football. But then also, I don't feel like the Utah game last year, when he was out there, a lot, they used him a lot in that game, I didn't feel like he was so great in that game, or such a standout guy that I felt like, oh, they were missing that version of Court Williams in the Michigan game, or at any point in this season, so whether he was hurt or not, Nathan and I both saw him in the Woody one day, in the big old arm contraction that Cody Simon was in at the Rose Bowl last year, so maybe he's not even fully healthy now, but... In the small you know sample size we've gotten outside of that Indiana game, I haven't seen enough from him to feel like they were missing him this year.
0: Yeah, I do not believe as, he as would much be. as they talked about all 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 the things they were gonna do with Jordan Hancock, right? Oh, right, we like nobody ever said, Oh, if only we had Court Williams, we could have been doing this have yeah. been doing this. And that's not his name just didn't come up. Where that sometimes, Nathan, they do sometimes talk about guys right. that they're missing and how much they are missing them, which is not a shot at Court Williams, it's just the realistic right version of how they discuss it. Yeah. I do just, think again keep in mind that the the Utah thing that you mentioned, Brant Keithy, Dalton Kincaid nine catches for 122. Two leading receivers for Utah's tight ends last year. That's just that you mentioned that in passing Nathan, that might be a good comparison for like the double tight end kind of thing that they'll be dealing with with Georgia
1: here. Go ahead. I just want to real quick say on the back of what Stephen was saying, I I have no reason to think Court Williams is healthy enough to play in the Peach Bowl, or will be. It, he looked. Oh, the no, way, no. The way so just, I, didn't, I just want to make sure that that was... I didn't want there to be speculation out there on that. I think he is done for the year. Okay.
0: From the 409. Rapid Fire. Assuming no alien abductions and all health is restored, what would be your starting 22 for the game against Georgia? Corey in Texas. I like he starts off by saying Rapid Fire. Now please name 22 players. Uh, it's not going to be that rapid, Corey in Texas. So... One of the things Nathan is, I think we are the Ryan, especially the way Ryan Day talked about it in the immediate aftermath of of getting in the playoff. I think we are starting to assume all health, right? And I think that would maybe relate to Mike Hall. That certainly would relate to Trivion Henderson and um, Mayan Williams. I'm trying to think of who else that would that relate to any any of the cornerbacks who have been in and out.
2: Burke, Cameron Brown, uh, Tanner McAllister has been dealing with like a groin thing, uh, Matthew Jones and his foot.
0: Matthew Jones, Matthew Jones. It, it doesn't feel like a stretch to maybe assume that full health, that if we want to have a full health conversation, Nathan, I don't think it's only hypothetical. I think it might be actually
1: realistic. No, but I also think that it means that – I don't know if we really need the name off all 22, right? Isn't it really just a conversation about two and a half positions? Maybe. It's defensive it's prob- tackle next to Teron Vincent. And I guess if you want to talk about a wrinkle in the secondary,
2: probably.
0: No, just, just, people like I mean, to hear we, names. Yeah, we, I mean, we can like, do
2: it all, though. We can yeah. Let's just, all right, let's get the ones out the way we know um, Coleridge, I, I Bernard. Said, if, if you at all. <laughs> No, which Bernard Stroudsworth will probably be the other side. I always
0: thought when you had a newspaper, if you just had told people every day, we're going to publish a different page of the phone book every day, but you're not going to know which page it is. So you better buy the newspaper because your name might be in there. That'd be a great way to sell newspapers. If we mm-hmm. just said we're going to read off a list. If you're a texter, we're going to read off a list every pod of 25 texters names. It would be oh they're gonna read my name. I mean I would do that right. Like people like to hear names, so we're gonna we'll say names, right? So we'll say names because people like to hear names. All so right. Steven wants to start on the offensive side of the ball. Say his whole name.
2: Okay, Coleridge Bernard Stroud the fourth.
0: Okay, so he's gonna start at quarterback, and then it's gonna be Marvin Harrison Jr., Julian All Fleming, right. and Emeka Abuka. Does anyone dispute that at receiver? No, nope. nope. so, no. Cade Stover's the tight end. Paris Johnson's a left tackle. Donovan Jackson's a left guard. Luke Whippler is the center. And Dewan Jones is the right tackle. Do we assume, Nathan Baird, that Matthew Jones at full health would be the right guard? I There was certainly a play in the Michigan game where they very much missed Matthew Jones because the person in his place got knocked over and gave up a pressure that mattered. We wouldn't assume that someone else would play if Matthew Jones's foot is okay.
1: Correct. Yeah. And I was actually about to look, I, I meant to look this up beforehand. It was, it w- he was a game time decision, I believe for the Michigan game, right?
2: He was. Yeah. He so, went I mean, that tells that you thing.
1: he wasn't like incapacitated that week. So uh, yeah, yeah, game time decision. So uh, that tells me he, sh- you would think is back at, at healthy enough to play a month later, six week, five weeks later.
0: Okay. So then who, what do we think? And we're doing starting 22, but what do we think Steven the running back situation would be. And Nathan, again, Ryan Day is talking about, it seems like he is assuming all hands on deck for that position against Georgia. What do you think that means, Stephen?
2: I think Mayan Williams starts and I think he plays. I cannot confidently say Travion Henderson is going to play for a month from now, especially since he's come out and said what his injury is. And the fact that he spent basically the second half of the he's first of all, he said the injury was two torn ligaments in his foot and a broken bone in his foot. And he's basically, he spent the second half of the season alternating between, I'm in a boot this week, I'm playing football this week. And at some point, if that's keeping him from being the Travion Henderson we've known him to be when he is at full strength, I, I'm i not confident saying that kid's going to play. I would be more conservative in thinking that until I see him with my own eyes, that that kid's done this year and he's going to get as healthy as he can. especially because if that's his injuries, that's not going to get healthy with a month off of not playing football. That's going to take a little bit longer than that. So uh, speaking as someone who doesn't have a PhD, that just doesn't sound like something that's going to take 30 days and you're ready to play football again. So I would assume mine Williams starts and he's your guy and we'll see Travion in the spring. That's – Ryan Day seemed more
0: open to the running backs will be healthy, right? The way – just in, in quick conversation, which we need to have a deeper conversation, which but is we that, hope to have when we talk to him on Tuesday. Is
2: that a, everybody's healthier or are we expecting to have depth? Because also, I mean, mine's been hurt. Um, they moved Chip into that room, and then the week they moved him into that room, he got hurt, and so he didn't play in that game, which is how you ended up with Dallin being your second guy. So that, that's almost two different conversations. Hey, Ryan, do you expect all – was it four scholarship players not named Evan Pryor? Cause he's got a knee thing to be healthy versus, Hey Ryan, do you expect to have some level of depth in the running back room? Because depth to him could be, we have three healthy guys ready to go versus yes. We expect everybody not named Evan Pryor to be healthy enough to play football.
1: Nathan, how are you viewing this? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because I mean, everybody, but Mayan played against Michigan. All three of those other running backs played against Michigan. So if Day is saying it's a progression past that, then that's something new. Um, Then that would put Trevion back in the mix. I I think if if Trevion is healthy, and man, is that such a moving target, right? Like, what does healthy mean anymore? Because I have some of the same skepticism as you. But if Trevion Henderson is healthy enough to put on a uniform and a helmet and everything, I think he starts that game because I think if they if they think he the rest and recuperation gets him to where he could do things that are closer to the best version of Trevion, that gives him a better chance to win that game, obviously, so this is the hardest one to call I think when I was making out this twenty two because his situation is so hard to pin down right now, and then but then even if he can suit up, I mean we've seen it. They put him on the field. They put him in the starting lineup. Sometimes yeah. even when, Marv- when when Mayan Williams is healthy and it's not, the, it hasn't been there. But how does that change over the span of whatever, how much time passes five weeks or more between Dece- the Michigan game and December 31st? So, but Trevion did not play against Michigan.
2: That's what I said. Yeah, he was the only one. Who but no.
1: Mayan, Mayan and and Mayan played a half, and, and Chip all played in that game.
2: Yeah. Okay, I
0: thought you said everybody played against Michigan. I meant okay.
1: all those yeah. other three guys did, so that if Day is saying more guys are going to be healthy, to me that means Trevion.
0: Right, okay, so Chip, 34 snaps against Michigan, Mayan 21, Dallin Hayden 11. Um, I do think my guess would be almost no matter what, Mayan's first guy up, and I just think they need a second guy. And so I, I I don't think their best path to victory is 25 carries for Mayan Williams. So mm-hmm. I think they need a second guy that they hand the ball to, that they give somebody the third series, even if Mayan's the first guy up. And that – we're going to do a little detour before we get to the defense, all 22. But we're going to detour to Dallin Hayden. And and Nathan, I feel like this is like at the top of the list of questions for Ryan Day. On Tuesday, my question is about Dallin Hayden. It's from the 415. It seems to me that the fan base wants to know why Dallin Hayden didn't get the bulk of the carries against Michigan. I think he bulks up and is a four-year beast at running back. He runs like Trey Sermon. So do you think he can run on Georgia like he did against Maryland? This remains kind of a mystery to us at this point, Nathan, right? And I do think this is something that people want, an- I mean, everyone deserves answers about this because it just still to us seems a little odd. And And I guess it's less a question, well, why he didn't play against Michigan is related to the question of, will he play against Georgia? But
1: people want to know what's up with Allen Hayden. No, I, it, so do we. And there wasn't, a, it wasn't like the forefront of things to ask immediately after the Michigan game in some ways. And it didn't really fit into, I guess, as we were flying through questions after the, but I agree that like, I think it needs to be pinned down more this week. Um, to answer the texter's question, do I think Dallin Hayden can run on Maryland on Georgia the way he ran on Maryland? No. I think it would take a pretty great game by the offensive line for him to do that. And I think it. I, I want to – man, we get the, into these areas all the time, right, where a guy really flashes something and it's like, oh, there's something there. Like he could be a guy that they use. Let's not, let's not get too far yet, um, especially as we compare him to what those guys might be, the guys who have been ahead of him when they are now a month healthier because that has been a factor in why those guys weren't as effective and why Hayden by comparison did look more effective so i i think it's it's he's really floating in this weird space because from a depth standpoint he really helps them and if that's your third option then that would seem to be a pretty good third option as they saw against maryland and and in some other games but he wasn't the third option against michigan he or I guess he was, but they didn't really even go that far in most cases. Like, they, they stuck with Tranum for the, the bulk of the, the the stretch of that game. So it, it tends to make you wonder, does the coaching staff, have they seen something that tells them that Tranum is the more reliable guy there? I know he's talked about day talks about ball security, but he talks about it about everybody. So I know that theory has been out there, but I don't know if I buy that because he brings it up. We talked about literally every running back on this team. And if he had Archie Griffin on his team, I think he would talk about it in relation to Archie Griffin. So I it's, it is a mystery and I hope we can maybe find out a little bit more this week. But if it's a thing like that, if it's a thing where like, well, ball control, whatever day's not going to throw him under the bus. So we may not get a direct answer on
2: that. Yeah. I think that's the more inter- it's, because I agree with Nathan. If mine and, and, and Trey are healthy, I, I think some of the bouncing outside, not hitting holes as hard as that might go away just simply because they can plant on these foots and these knees and everything else they got going on. The bigger question should be, why is Chip Traynham, who you brought in here to be a linebacker and up until like two weeks before the mission game was in your linebacker room. Why did you trust him with the ball in the most important game of the year? When Donald Hayden has just spent the week before showing you really the, the last two weeks having 100-yard days and showing you he can do some of the stuff that you weren't getting from Travion and mine because they weren't healthy. So I, that, that's almost more interesting to me is if everybody is healthy, with the room you have now, knowing Evan Price probably not playing this year, why isn't Dallin Hayden the third guy up to bat? And why is a guy who was a linebacker for most of the year now up third to bat just because he did some things at Arizona, even when, when you were recruiting him? this This staff was recruiting him out of high school, was recruiting him to play linebacker, which is why he didn't come here.
0: No, I, I was going to ask, oh, do you think some combination of Mayan and Dallin would be enough against Georgia? But it's like, as it sits right now, why would we think that it would be Dallin instead of Chip? Because Chip yeah. just played all the snaps against Michigan. What would what would lead us to that conclusion? Right. And I, I do think the hard thing is they, I think at times, I think there are some still legitimate vision questions in the running back room, even if they're healthy. And I do think, to your point, Stephen, that it's harder to put your foot in the ground and hit an inside hole when your foot doesn't feel good. But they they almost needed some of the basics, it felt like, when Dallin yeah. was doing that against Maryland. It's like, just hit a hole inside and get five yards. And then when you get to teams like Michigan and Georgia, the basics are fine, but they're not good enough. You need electricity. Yeah. You need somebody who's going to make something out of nothing. You need something who's, somebody who's going to do something spectacular. And, and when a hole is there, you don't get eight. When a hole is there, you get thirty five you know, and I do think they didn't lose the Michigan game because of their run game, but they also didn't get much spectacular stuff in the run game. It was like solid when they needed it, but sometimes in a game like that, you need more than that. I don't know the holes that Donovan Edwards got for the two 75 and eighty five yard touchdown runs. I don't know if Ohio State had a running back running back in that game that would have turned those exact holes. Into game ending touchdown runs. I I don't know because sometimes when it happens, it can look easy, but then sometimes you can also be watching things and be like, well, that looked like the other hole was there and the guy didn't hit it. No, he got four. So that's the kind of thing that matters. And I do think that they have it at receiver. Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Gbuka and Cade Stover at times and Julian Fleming down the field are gonna have moments where they can do things where, well, this is the expectation and you can exceed it with your talent. And they've got to, they've got to get as much of that as they can out of the running back room. And I don't know if they maybe thought that Dallin, now I'm just theorizing, is Dallin a nice, solid guy against Maryland, but you thought we need a little more and Chip. I mean, that's the thing I did in the preseason. Everybody's like, oh, who's who's the best athlete in the lineback room? Everybody's like, Chip is the best at everything. He is the fastest and he is the strongest and he is a superhero as soon as he figures out how to play linebacker. And against Michigan, they were like, you know who we could give the ball to? The guy who's the fastest, strongest player on the team. And so they said, well, we'll give it to him instead of the very reliable, overachieving, doing his job, hitting the hole that's there, freshman who got here in June. We'll, we'll give it to this guy who's been playing major college football games for two years and see if he's got a little something-something. Now, at Arizona State, if he had if he had put it all together, he never would have transferred back to Ohio State because he would have run for 1,300 yards in the Pac-12. So also, like, well, he didn't exactly show that as a running back. He was solid, but he wasn't spectacular. So, Stephen, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm talking myself in a circle no, here. No, no, no. I, I,
2: you, but if you're looking a for
0: a little more, right, you're looking for a little more.
2: Yeah, and – you, you you said freshman a couple of times, and I, I think this is a terrible excuse. If this is this is once also theorizing just for a second, but if there's any truth to this, I think it's stupid. But you hear Larry Johnson say this all the time: is you don't want to put freshmen in situations where they can make a mistake and then it lives with them the rest of their career. And if you felt like you had a guy in Chip who had played in some games like this, even if it wasn't the Ohio State Michigan game, he played in some high tense environments like this. You maybe trusted him a little bit more to not make a mistake in that moment. While with Dallin Hayden, as much as we've talked about him in a great way, it was Indiana and it was Maryland. Like you still have to put the competition into context. It's not like he had 150 yards in week one against Notre Dame where he'd done that before. So maybe that's part of this is when you're looking for the guy who's going to go above and beyond, typically veterans are more capable of going above and beyond simply because – they know the basics already. So they're not just going to do the, I'm going to get, this is designed for six yards. I'm going to get that and make sure I don't do anything wrong with it afterwards. Cause that's not in the back of their head. They've done the, I'm going to get six yards a million times. So how about I try to go get 60 this time, which is where Donovan Edwards, he had been doing that. Blake Corum the year before had been doing that, but that's the difference between the normal freshman and the special freshman. like Travion Henderson, when he was healthy in 2021, He didn't care about getting six yards. He cared about getting 60 every single time. That's where you bring a Garrett Wilson and a Marvin Harrison in the the Rose Bowl. And that's, back to the recruiting element, that's the difference between five-star recruits and all the other recruits. Is five-star recruits already have the mindset of, I'm trying to go make a big play every single time, while fresh normal freshmen are just trying to not make mistakes and do what's supposed to happen there. And you can't just have, do what's supposed to happen there when you're playing Michigan and you're playing Georgia and you're trying to win a national title. It's going to be a fun day talking to Ryan Day on Tuesday. If
0: we said to Ryan Day, if we said, how come you didn't play Dallin Hayden against Michigan? Because he did play a little bit at the end. And if he said, are you asking me why we didn't start the true freshman who wasn't here in the spring, who was supposed to be our fourth stringer this year? Are you asking why we didn't start him against Michigan in the most important game that Ohio State had played in the Ryan Day era? Are you asking why we didn't put that on him and say, here, here's the first touch of the Michigan game. We'll give it to you, eighteen year old. Is that your question? And you might be like, Oh, yeah, no, I guess that is my question. Sorry. There is a <laughs> there is like a portion of that, Nathan, that it's like we spent all week being like, down, Hayden, down, Hayden. And then if they were like, you guys understand
1: the difference between the Maryland game and the Michigan
0: game, right? And then we were like, Oh, yeah, no, wait, okay, no, that's right.
1: Well, okay, two things. Number one, Dallin Hayden had still repped at running back more this year than Chip Traynum had. Chip would had one carry yes. and had only been in the room for a couple of weeks. So it's not like he was coming in. Yes, he had the past experience, but which one was keyed up more to be a running back this year? But also, we talked before in the past, when sometimes we come in and say, Dallin Hayden, Dallin Hayden, Dallin Hayden, Ryan Day quickly says, oh, hey, uh, let me push that topic like over here to the side. And really do that with Dallin Hayden. He was saying, yeah, you could see it on film. Look at what he's doing. Like we've got to consider giving him a bigger role. Now, maybe some of that was gamesmanship. have a choice. <in> Michigan. <laughs> well, he obviously did have a choice. Well, no, I mean he I just mean he,
2: it's like he's got a, his best two running backs are hurt and his third best running back got hurt Fall Kemp. He's gotta make sure that freshman's got confidence right now. So th- maybe th- th- that's what I that's what I mean more gamesmanship than making sure Michigan's preparing for him. It's more just I mean, I have to play him, so I might as well make sure that he's confident while he's out there. And now that I don't have well, to play him, then I'll, no, we're going to hype up these other guys. He,
1: he didn't play him, and now where's his confidence? Like after talking about him in such a positive way, like <laughs> sure. I, I don't know. We're, we're speculating some things that th- th- there may have been conversations inside that building that set all this straight for all we know right now. But uh, we're not privy to that at this point. But I, I, all that, I think the crux of all of this is this is not how you want to be talking about half of your offense as you're about to go play the best defense you've played in a few years. No, but but
0: I would I think Ryan Day would rather have it be talked about like this than it's not and Mayan. Yeah. still hurt. Like sure. Yeah. Here's here's what I here's what I think. If Mayan Williams is himself, if Mayan Williams is himself, I think Ohio State will feel moderately to pretty good okay. <laughs> <laughs> about the run game against Georgia, knowing they need a compliment. They need some kind of compliment, but that if Mayan is the lead back with what they want to do and the things that you've seen Mayan do at his best and at his healthiest, I think they will feel okay about that. And that is not where they were for the Michigan game. Correct. Correct. The Michigan game was Travion didn't play and Mayan wasn't himself. So Mayan being himself, I think in their minds would be a significant step forward from the Michigan game. And then everything else can work itself out because then everything else is working out behind Mayan. Well, is it Chip? Or is it Dallin? Well, could it be some of Trey? I don't know, but that's, but that's behind Mayan as the guy, which I think they have become pretty comfortable with over the course of this season. And then again, to me, I don't think the best version of their offense is 28 carries for Mayan Williams against Georgia, but if you can give him 18-20 and you can give somebody else 6-8 to eight and you can get where you need to go, I think, I think Ryan Day would take that every day of the week compared to what they have been trying to figure out over the course of a 12-game regular season where since Trey and Mayan both ran for 100 yards against Wisconsin, it's kind of been a mess with trying to figure out who's going to be healthy and who's not going to be healthy. All right, let's run through the defense pretty quick. Nathan, Zach Harrison, JT Tui out, defensive ends, Teron Vincent, as you mentioned, at one defensive tackle. I think we would agree on those three starters. Who do you want to
1: start at the other defensive tackle? I want to start Mike Hall. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> I mean, I, get, else. I bought the bus. I painted the bus. We're taking the bus to Georgia. Um, I just still think he's their best defensive tackle and it, when he's healthy. So uh, this is, again, was a thing that kept coming up. He's a, And unlike the running backs, I guess with maybe one exception, they never really just sat Hall. They just limited Hall and used him as much as they felt like they could get out of him. So is that something, whatever his issue is, does it get better in a month to where he could now play a full complement of snaps again? Because there were times this year where he was playing yeah. a, a bunch of snaps. So if I think to beat a team this good, you want your best guys on the field as much as possible. And it's no um it's not really a rip on Ty Hamilton or, or whoever else they would consider there, but I think Mike Hall's their best guy. I think that's who they should try to get on the field as much as possible.
2: I agree. Because Trey's thing was more, I mean, he'd do something good, and then next thing you know, he's done for the day. While Mike Hall, anytime we got a chance to talk to him, I mean I got a chance to talk to him one-on-one, it was like I'm not that hurt. Let me play more. Let me play more. Let me play more. So that seems like something where a month of not playing football can help him. And I agree that my call should start. But I mean to go to a further extent here, I just I mean Teron Vincent, Mike Hall, and Todd Hamilton, those are your three defensive tackles, and it should just be that.
0: My call snaps have just decreased, right? Yep. Over the course mm-hmm. of the years. Yep. He's dealt with this thing. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame 30. Arkansas State 28. Did not play against Toledo, Wisconsin 27, Rutgers 40, Michigan State 8, Iowa 25, Penn State 32. There's a line in the sand, Penn State 32, and then Northwestern 18, Indiana 16, Maryland 13, Michigan 13. When you look at the defensive tackle snaps against Michigan, Teron Vincent 45, Ty Hamilton 30, Tyleek Williams 17, Mike Hall 13, Jerron Cage 8. So that's a big load for Teron Vincent, Nathan. And I think I think most people are pretty comfortable with that. I mean, if you could get Mike Hall from the teens up towards 30, I think a lot of people would feel better about their ability to get some interior pressure on Stetson Bennett. And again, uh, against Michigan, I did think it made sense to some degree. Not that he can't play the run, but that's maybe not what he does best. And you thought, well, Michigan's going to try to run it on us. Georgia actually, you know, Georgia's going to try to do use that intermediate pass game. And if you can get a little pressure on Stetson Bennett, he's a good athlete, he'll get out of the pocket. But I, I do think that could be more advantageous against Georgia. So, again, I think, as Steven said, we know who the top three should be. But, man, if you got, I think if Mike Hall starts the game, Ohio State fans are going to be pumping their fists a little
1: bit. Tommy well, Eichenberg, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to Casey. make a quick point that I made, uh, I think, in a, a, a text that I sent out that I it's why developing guys all around is so important and why Mike Hall, if it really is a run, game issue that he needs to take another step because, yeah, they didn't expect Michigan to hurt him with the pass, but they did. And if you get him on the field more, does he create some of that internal pressure even in that game? Does it take away one explosive play? And how much does that change the complexion of that game? Like, we'll never know. When you looked at the snap count and you saw the Penn State thing, it made you think, okay, well, he's going to spike when they really need him in these games where they're it's you know a tight game or they're playing their best opponent but then that didn't happen against Michigan so it, whether that I, I just if, if if it was completely for the idea of him not being as good at stopping the run I, I don't know man like I want a guy who can who can knock guys back and, and take him down for a loss or disrupt the backfield too even if I don't know I, I it just feels like a missed opportunity
2: but to play devil's advocate, I mean, we're doing it with the running backs, how maybe some of the reason they're not running well is because they're not healthy. I mean, but they weren't doing that with Mike Hall against Notre Dame and against Wisconsin. He just was out there playing. So how much of this isn't so much that from a development standpoint, he can't stop the run versus he's not healthy enough to hold up in there and hold guys and yes. so that they can create holes for it. I mean, they blitz linebackers and safeties in this defense. And if you're not healthy enough to – take on a double team or stand up an interior offensive lineman and let those linebackers through there, then we can't use you in those situations. And it's not because you're not good enough. It's because you're physically unable to do that right now. So to to your point of you want a defensive tackle who who can do everything, Michael probably can. It's just when you're not healthy, you can't do that. So if he's healthy, maybe it does get back to whatever his snap counts were for the Notre Dame and the Wisconsin game where it was a little bit more, I'm just kind of out there and me and Toronto just playing.
0: It's not like he's terrible against the run. 72 no. run defense grade, 81 pass. Uh, no, yeah, uh, 79 pass rush grade, right? So he's just, we. he's their most effective interior pass rusher. We all know that. Everybody who watches Ohio State knows that. But, uh, and then I just, you know, tie in to run, maybe take up a little more space and you understand. And th- they all would work in there. But I think more my call in general, I think everybody listening to this pod, including my call, as you said, Stephen, my call's like, yes. More, my call, please. Yeah. We all have more, my call. My call is like raising his hand. I would like more, my call, said Mike call Jr. More, my call. Lathan Ransom, Ronnie Hickman at safety, Tommy Eichenberg, and Steel Chambers at linebacker. We all know that. Corner, Steven. Who should start at corner? And again, we're assuming that in a year where everybody at corner has missed time, if they're all good to go, who are their starting corners against Georgia?
2: Clark Phillips. No, I am joking. Um, I think <laughs> I, th- I think Camry Brown and Denzel Burke are going to start, and I think Jordan Hancock's the third guy. And it's just a three man rotation with those three, barring they're all healthy. With J.K. Johnson on deck, if something happens.
0: So J.K. Johnson played a lot against Michigan. He J.K. Did. Johnson played. Played 33 snaps. Cam Brown played 24 against Michigan. And Jordan Hancock basically didn't play on defense. Denzel Burke yeah. led the corners with 59 snaps. He was basically out there the whole game against Michigan. Nathan, there's like the what we think. And then there's like the what, what people want, what we would do versus what we actually think is going to happen. I mean, J.K. Johnson has been out there a lot this year. I don't know what to think of how this is going to go, and I don't know what to make of the fact that Jordan Hancock didn't play defense, but he did play special teams against Michigan. How do you think this might shake out, Nathan?
1: Yeah, and again, this is just one that gets thrown off by the injury stuff too, because I think Cam Brown got banged up a little bit in the Michigan game. That affected things. But if I'm picking starters, it's still – I agree with Steven. It's still him and Burke, and especially because I think Brown has been the one who has been the most up to the physical challenge – Yep. Than the other guys. The Michigan State game was a really bad game for him. The first game he came back from injury, and then as it turned out, wasn't healthy enough to play for like another couple, three weeks. Other than that, though, I think he's been fairly solid, and I would just want like a more veteran, mature, physical presence on the field um, for when you're going to need it against a team like this. The Hancock is the one, that, again, it's uh, so many positions we're talking about where, like, yes, the upside for him. Is the greatest. However, even after he came back and after they were so excited to get him back, it was like they were looking for every excuse to protect him and not put him back on the field. And the Michigan usage is really strange because, as you say, he could play special teams that day, but they did not trust him at cornerback in that game.
2: He made a mistake, I think, in the Maryland game and they pulled him. And I don't think we saw him again after that. So, how much of that is. Oh wait, he's actually not healthy enough to cover. Versus, oh, he just doesn't have the reps, and so he's not used to being out there, and so he's not going to do us any good. So let's not even put him out there. Um, but to your point about Cameron Brown, I just, I mean, regard—I don't care what their ages are—he's just—he's been their best cornerback this year when it comes to making plays on the ball, even if he's had his fair share of mistakes as well.
0: Okay, so that leaves Tanner McAllister as that slot corner, and when Tana McAllister's healthy, like he just plays pretty much. 49 snaps against Notre Dame, 40 against Arkansas State, 37 Wisconsin. The Rutgers game was a blowout. Uh, Michigan State, 36. Iowa, 25. Penn State, 77. Northwestern, 49. Indiana, 37. Maryland, 58. 44 snaps in the Michigan game when he was, I think, dealing with something. Nathan, we've seen... Some instances, very specific, like Iowa, right? Some of them where it's like, all right, we well, you're going to play maybe a little more Cody Simon as a third linebacker and maybe he comes off the field. I don't know. It doesn't feel like as much as they're going to use 12 personnel and throw to the tight ends. I don't know that that's the, you know, Georgia's not Iowa. I mean, Georgia's going to throw the ball. Georgia throws the ball more than Ohio State does. I just think Tanner McAllister's going to play. And I think we can look, I don't know. Right, we've already kind of covered the Sonny Styles thing. I think we can look for a bunch of wrinkles, third linebacker, a different safety, I don't know. But they kind of just play Tanner McAllister off, usually kind of against normal offenses, Nathan. And I think for the moment, that's what I think, that Tanner McAllister is just going to be out there a lot.
1: Yeah, definitely. And he's been a playmaker at times. Like, when he's healthy, I think he's a pretty solid player. So uh, he's one that I wonder if we're going to see the best version of him that we've seen in a while, just because – even though he's only missed the one game, I think it's been, he's been clearly playing through something. Like sometimes even having good games while then you would do interviews afterwards and people are like, well, yeah, you, you guys don't really know that he's banged up to this extent. So I, I I think he's just a mainstay, except that he is the guy that they'll peel off in, in some of those formations. But that's just, that speaks to kind of the flexibility that he gives you too, um, that you, you still believe you have enough help other, other places in the defense that you can make those sorts of changes with him.
2: Yeah. That's more just matching personnel stuff. I think he starts. And I mean, if we're doing a most important defensive players that they need to be starting against Georgia, I think he's high on that list just because in the times he's had to come off the field because of injuries, it just it has not looked pretty for Cameron Martinez this year. He it's, when it's double moves and two, it just hasn't looked pretty. So while for making up who's the best defensive players, he's not on that list. But just in terms of just value, because of what the guy behind him is, I think Tanner McAllister is pretty high. Because before the Michigan game, I'm not sure how many slots had had that many big plays this season that I can think of. Because even I, I think it was the the Wisconsin game where the he got beat, but he still ends up making a play and saving a touchdown in that situation. I, I don't, I haven't seen other Nichols be able to make plays like that.
0: All right, so we did it. We went through everybody we think is going to play
2: and start against
0: Georgia. When we come yeah. back, not very rapid, not very rapid. When we come back, we'll a couple more things. Uh, we got to get through a Jim Harbaugh thing that I think is an instructive point to apply to a high-state situation. Some other stuff next on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. Uh, we get various questions like this over time, and I'm always happy for us to answer them from the 616. Okay. My question is, are you guys actual Buckeye fans? Just hearing some stuff over the last few or so podcasts that I'm just wondering, are you? People are saying you aren't, but I feel like you guys would not be doing all this if you were not. (laughs) So um, we've covered that before. I'm not an Ohio State fan. I did not grow up an Ohio State fan. This is our profession. We choose to cover sports teams for a living, and it's fun and exciting and interesting and my answer always is you get to know the people that you cover and you know them better than the people that you don't cover. And you come across a lot of great people and it's you wish good things upon good people. And so I am not an Ohio State fan, but if you, I think that CJ Stroud is a good person. I think that Zach Harrison is a good person. I think that. JT Tuimoloow is a good person. I think that Donovan Jackson and Luke Whippler and Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ibuka and Ronnie Hickman and everybody else It's like, man, these are really nice young men who work hard. And wouldn't it be lovely for good things to happen to their lives because they seem like people who work for that and deserve that. And that's just a human thing. But no, I'm not an Ohio State fan. Nathan, how do you want to answer this question?
1: Same. I mean, no, I'm not an Ohio State fan either. Didn't grow up. In Ohio didn't, you know, came here for this job um, from another place where I didn't have any connection to the team before I started covering the team. So that's, again, just how this goes. We're mercenaries a little bit, but in in some ways we have to be, let me say this right. Do you have to be a fan of Ohio State fans? You're an advocate for Ohio State fans, I guess is the best way to put it. And you try to be a conduit between the team and to those of you who are listening to this. And, you know, we try to, you know, get the information that you need and we try to put perspective on the information that is or may be out there. So we're trying to be on your side more than we are on the team side, I guess, is probably the best way to describe it.
2: Yeah, no, I'm not a fan. I don't care who wins or loses the games. I I mean, this sports. I am a fan of people, though, and I'm a fan of some of the stories that can come out of this if that makes any sense. I'm a fan of the story of C.J. Stroud uh, as this kid who was unknown, and then all of a sudden, you know, in three years, this kid's life has very much changed. And the same thing for Jack Sawyer or Dwayne Haskins. I got to cover four of his games. And, you know, you get to know them a little bit, The, the Justin Fields story. I'm a fan of the stories that you get to tell because you get to know these people and see them at a very important juncture of their life. Where they're going from being these little kids well not little kids, I mean they're seventeen years old, kids to adults who are going through a very important part of their life in public eye. And I think that I'm I could care less if Ohio State beats Michigan or what his record is against Michigan and whatnot, but I do care about the story that is some of these a lot of these kids. And I don't even know why I'm calling them kids. I'm like five years older than most of these kids. It's weird. Are you younger than fine? I am I am literally a year older than Stetson Bennett. It's so weird. It's weird that he and Lamar Jackson are the same age. How old is he? He's twenty six or he's either twenty six or twenty seven.
0: He's twenty five. He's twenty five. Okay, so I'm two he, years older than he turned. Twenty six would be twenty five is very old. Twenty seven would be very very old for a college football quarterback. How old
2: was Todd Beckman? Well, he turned twenty five. That's always what I think of when I think of old quarterbacks. Oh
0: yeah, who like red shirted and gray a shirted 60-year. and purple Green shirted, shirt, shirted red and
2: silver shirted and fuchsia shirted. And, and
0: there's when you have the guys who are like Chris Wenke and Chris, Joe yeah, it's Balls the one I think of. Yeah, played minor league baseball before they came to college. So, um, so in the end, I think that's you know our explanation. We're we're happy to answer that question when we get it i did I did in my life cover the team that was the team I was the biggest fan of as a young sports fan as a child, and i didn't I didn't find it any you know more or less rewarding than like covering a team that I had no connection to when I got here you know so anyway, the job's fun I don't think you could do it if you didn't like sports in general if you're like uh yeah. sports, what a useless waste of human energy. You're like, well, I don't know. You do go to football games like every week. That would be hard. Uh, But you don't have to be a, a fan of the team that you cover. All right, let's do a Caleb Downs question, Stephen. How is the Caleb Downs situation developing? We know that National Signing Day is not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, the 21st. Ohio State's class continues to come together. What, what's the latest we know about Caleb Downs, Stephen?
2: K- K- Caleb Downs, a top safety in the 2023 recruiting class, number six overall player in the composite rankings. He came to the Ohio State-Michigan game, so that's a point in Ohio State's book. They were trying to get him to come to Columbus instead of go to the Alabama-Auburn game, so that's good that he showed up. It's probably not good that he showed up and then he watched him get deep down, but, or maybe it is good because he can look at that and go, oh, I could take that guy's job right there. But they are going to see him, and I'm pretty sure they've already gone to see him. So it's they've thrown the kitchen sink at this kid at this point. They've recruited him through two staffs now. Uh, Perry Eliano's built a strong relationship with him. Uh, Tim Walton and Caleb Downs' father are very good friends. They had a relationship before uh, Tim Walton was even brought on to the staff, so that's already in place there. Um, He's talked with Jim Knowles. He's got a relationship with Ryan Day. He's been here. They've been there multiple times both ways, and we're just its in the waiting game stage. And I don't know if no news is good news for Ohio State. Because if he does nothing, he's going to Alabama. So in Nick Saban's case, you want the kid to do nothing. You want a, a silent and a drama-free signing day because that's good for Alabama. You want it to kind of be drama-filled for Ohio State because that means he's flipping. So right now, it's, it's I don't want to say it's quiet, but it's. I don't think it's looking good that – it doesn't feel like there's any momentum shifting towards Ohio State at the moment. Who also just lost out on Keon Keely about two hours before we recruited as the top edge rusher. So Alabama and Ohio State have fought over fought over a lot of five stars in this class, and Alabama has won every single one so far. So I, I don't I don't want to get anybody's hopes up about that. He just remains a guy for
0: me. And who's a little bit of the canary in the coal mine of this NIL situation. And and maybe it's not the way to look at it anymore. But, I'll, but when oh, I'm yeah. a, I think it is in June was talking about NIL and was saying there's a player who wants to come here. He wants to be a Buckeye, but the NIL situation just has to be competitive. He can't say it. But the guy he was talking about was Caleb Downs. And so that is not an excuse. That is not. Uh, definitive. That's what is going on here, but that's the guy to me that has been a little bit of an indicator in this. And I just did 25 minutes on the rant pod and we'll have plenty of time to talk about NIL in the off season, but you know, and and I do think with Bama, it's just, it's not as much of an NIL thing. If this guy was down to Texas A&M or Florida or Tennessee Versus Ohio State, and be like, okay, in a non NIL world, this guy would be maybe locked into Columbus already. Bama is always going to be Bama. But I think that idea of, I don't know, Nathan, maybe I make too much of it, but that has just stuck with me the whole time with Caleb Downs. Of the, it to me is at least like a little bit of a test of Ohio State's NIL standing because that was Ryan Day. It was a reference point. He can't say his name, but if you knew anything about recruiting, you knew who he was talking about because he said the number one safety in the country. Yeah, that just remains a test for me, Nathan, and I will be very curious how this works out in the end, and I will be very curious how Ryan Day talks about it after the fact. Whichever way Caleb Downs goes, I don't. It, to me, it's not a definitive. If they get him, Ohio State to NIL is a success. If they don't get him, Ohio State to NIL is a failure. But it feels like a little bit of a modern day NIL
1: recruitment. For Ohio State. Well, there was a time when it felt like Ohio State had real momentum, even when they put out that proclamation. I didn't necessarily hear that as like Ohio State is behind. It was just a statement of fact as to to rally people as to the level that it was going to take. And it was right around that time. I can't remember if it was before or after that, because I was on break there for a couple months and I can't remember if I wrote that's this what before you want to call that. It was break. It was paternity break.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a break from working, but it wasn't a break from working. If you know.
1: Oh I... no, it's very, very true, yeah. <laughs> we
2: we do have a diaper
1: question. We have
0: a diaper. <laughs> I saw that <laughs> saving for later yeah. in the pod.
1: Yeah. Um, but but there was a there was the period there was the big there was a deal that got announced that was Stroud, Smith and Jigba and Burke Trevion Henderson and De- and Denzel Burke was the yeah. fourth guy in this in this package. And I wrote at the time that that seemed like a big moment for Ohio State to be able to say, you can come here, you know, yes, the quarterback, yes, the All-American receiver, yes, the five-star um, upwardly uh, uh, um, achieving running back. You can all come here and get big deals. So can – The cornerbacks, so can defensive backs, these kind of sometimes nameless, faceless guys, especially faceless guys from a from a notoriety standpoint can come here and and share in these rewards. And for whatever reason, between that time, between those early months of of NIL, when Ohio State was touting itself in the open doors um, rankings of, of being the having the most in the country, it's slipped. Like they haven't sustained that. So, now I think- uh, having said all that, I, it's very possible that even if Ohio State had stepped up more, that Alabama could have countered and and been a fact. You know, it's not like it's not given that Ohio State would have necessarily landed him regardless. But it it, it is, I think, worth following these head to head battles against the places where they do seem to be getting it done in NIL and where Ohio State is still. Striving but, for,
2: but, it's, I, but I don't the
1: think thing the Bama is, to me is not an NIL. That no, Bama is
2: less it's, it's of an NIL. It's not. It's Bama's not Bama. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not complete. It's, it's never with Bama. You can't go. Oh, it's one hundred percent because this kid's getting this money from Bama and they're not getting it from Ohio State. But I do think that with guys like Downs, with guys like Keon Keeley, with guys like Damon Wilson, the number twelve player, number two edge rusher, who'll make his decision on the twenty first, it does feel like with the NIL stuff, you can't let that be such a a gap between the two programs that the kid has no choice but to not come here. And it does feel like with some of these guys, that's the case. So it's not a Bama only beat out Ohio state for player X because they're willing to play the NIL game that Ohio state doesn't want to play. It's that they all they're equal. And then you look at the NIL situations and it's like, dude, are you serious? I look at what they're giving me versus what you can give me, not necessarily what you're willing to give me. It's just, you can't give me what this team can give me. And I think that's what how the with these some of these players where we're coming down to the the finish line a little bit. That's what it feels like. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, Nick Saban has come out and said this. Ohio State's not doing this either, and Georgia to an extent has not been doing this. They're not playing the We're going to give a, a nil collective is going to give a kid a six figure six figure deal to come here at all. It's a bonus, but when you're dealing with that and you're losing but you're losing out because of the bonus, that's a different situation. And that's when you get Gene Smith putting out the press release that he put out and you have at the basketball game, they're having people up with the QR code sign up to donate to these NIL collectives because now it's not that you're losing kids to schools that where you can just go, oh, that kid's only going there because of the money. And maybe a year from now, he's back in the transfer portal, as it seems like we're seeing with Texas A&M right now. Now you're losing kids to – schools that you would be losing into to if NIL didn't exist. And it's because that's the one area you can no longer compete with.
0: Okay. I will be very curious. It's a headache talking about NIL. What Ryan Day says on national signing day yeah. about this. And if Ryan Day says, we love our class. There are four guys that would be in this class, if not for NIL, that we, they wanted to be here but we could not match. I, I, I will be really curious because it's strategy, mm-hmm. how much he uses that moment to discuss that. Or if he says, you know what, I, we'll talk about NIL another time. We let's talk about the 23 guys that we signed. We love this class. These are guys who want to be Buckeyes, all that kind of stuff. I'm really, really curious uh, how he chooses to to go about that. Just as a, a an update, Ohio State currently in the 247 composite ranks, fifth, Overall in the 2023 class, 19 commits in the class so far. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys in the top 100 at the moment. And we'll I, deal with more recruiting stuff I later. Make one last point, yep. and then we
2: can move on. I think the main thing is here Ohio State's having to deal with flipping rumors with a lot of g- kids right now. Uh, Jermaine Matthews had to put out a statement last week. Auburn is trying to flip Kyan Lee. Auburn's been trying to flip Jelani Thurman since he committed you don't see the same things happening at Alabama and Georgia right now with constant rumors of – What do you mean Ohio State's trying to flip Caleb Downs from Alabama? That's equal playing field though. I mean like you don't see a bunch of lower-level programs trying to flip kids from Alabama and Georgia the same way you see Miami and Florida and Auburn trying to flip kids from Ohio State.
0: Did Miami just flip a Michigan kid? Couple, I think a week or two they ago, did. they flipped the yeah, Michigan kid. They did.
1: So, um, also we not call those lower-level
2: programs. Those are programs that have slipped, oh, and from a recruiting using, from a they recruiting standpoint. they recruiting standpoint, yeah, they're not to the, State, Yeah, Auburn doesn't put together top-five recruiting classes, and Miami has been a slugfest and sure. a bottom feeder program pretty much for the last fifteen years. So right, that's, but that's
1: why that. they're doing this. That they're they're trying to play catch up, and NIL is right. giving them a way to do it.
2: Right, that's my point, though. No, you right. don't see them trying to do NIL. it. Right, and what I'm saying is, but you don't see them trying to do it to Alabama and Georgia. You see them trying to do it to Ohio State. We're kind of making the same point here. Let's. But at the point, but at the point, that's what, and, and I covered a lot of this on the Rants
0: Pod. Is like it's the teams that are trying to get somewhere yeah. that aren't where they want to be, who are going super heavy in NIL. But if the idea is Bama and Georgia maybe aren't going as hard, but they're going far enough. So they don't have flipping rumors and Ohio state maybe is still dealing with flipping rumors. I think, I think, and rumors, 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 whatever. Like that is going to be some indicator of when you, if you look at teams and say, okay, these teams are better on the field in producing NFL talent, whatever. And then did they lose recruiting battles or lose flips to lesser programs who probably were hitting it hard in NIL? Like you can track that you can, that's going to be some evidence making the case for, for who's doing what they need to do and who's not. Uh, okay. I just like little things like this. I think it's worth talking about sometimes from the four eight zero, you asked for life questions. When I sent out the call to texters, I said like high state football, national college football, big 10 holiday stuff, life, whatever. I'm actually going to save most of the holiday stuff for next week. You asked for life questions. And I meant to send this one. I heard it, but I forgot a few weeks ago on the rants pod, someone sent in how they were in the hospital as their baby was born and was listening to you guys. I was also doing the exact same thing during that time and had a few episodes stacked up. I think that is cool how you guys cover a team in Ohio, but two different people in California and Carolina have a huge life event and three dudes talking football and nonsense play a role in that. Anyway, not a question, but I thought it was worth shouting you guys out. Also, in the race for a newborns fandom, Ohio State has taken the lead over Bama. So a special thanks to Utah. Utah for uh, for knocking uh, USC out and getting Ohio State in the playoff. I just think it's a nice reminder for all of us that uh, Ohio State football, this is what sports does. It connects people, and we are happy and honored to be a little tiny conduit between all you people who love the Buckeyes. Um, Nathan, I have a diaper question for you. From the 740, do you have any tips for keeping a one-year-old boy from peeing through his diaper at night?
1: Buy better diapers? I don't know. Uh, we don't do anything special to do. To, to to prevent him from peeing through. Now, what I will say is he, uh, my son is in a place where he tends to, um, still wake up in the middle of the night. And when that was my job to go in and, and like feed him a bottle or whatever, I would also change him then. So just changing him more often, sometimes you can kind of essentially do it while they're sleeping would probably be one option too. But, uh, we've kind of gotten away from that recently. We're approaching it a little different way. I don't have to do that as much anymore. So, we unfortunately haven't had. I would actually be fine with picking my son up from a puddle of pee every morning if it meant that he slept through the night. I think I would trade that.
2: Oh, yeah. That just no, does sleeping not sleeping. sound like good parenting at all, but okay.
1: Well, judge, judge not I mean, like be Judge, Stephen.
2: <laughs> just be <pee. laughs> Someday. It's just It's just natural. all natural. Yeah. All
0: right. Fuck I talk. For it's organic. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's fine. Um, all right, let's do one more thing before we get to some Harbaugh stuff, which is not really about Harbaugh, but is kind of about Harbaugh. From the nine eight nine, I talked about this on the uh, about the Keenan Bailey hiring on the Rants uh, Keenan Bailey hiring on the Rants pod. You talked about the inexperience at position coaches being a potential problem, but what if it's something new that Ryan Day can use as a legacy thing, like Nick Saban remaking crappy coaches? I don't know. Anything about coaching, just a thought from the 989. This person's saying, Nathan, they don't know anything about it. The point that I brought up, if you guys didn't listen, is just that this is the third, Keenan is the third promotion from within of young guys in their early 30s who either have not had full time assistant jobs at other programs, or in the case of Parker Fleming, had limited experience at Texas State and JMU. And that when you compare them to the people that they were directly replacing, which is Kevin Wilson. Mike Yersich and Greg Madison, that that is quite a difference in experience. And that's that's just a fact. That's just a fact. These This was the guy who was out. This was the guy who was brought in. And it's not even about age. To me, it's about experience at a high level of coaching. So whether you think that's good, whether you think that's bad, it is a thing. This person suggesting, hey, maybe Ryan Day is going to be this guy who develops. You know, Nick Saban You go get recycled, and then he sends you back out into the world. Is this going to be a thing where Ryan Day has this great young talent that he gives a great opportunity to, and then they go out into the world, and then Ryan Day, oh, I want to work for Ryan Day because he promotes young guys and gives them a shot and is loyal to them, and then, wow, it becomes this pipeline. I don't know. I kind of gave a whole thing about that. Nathan, do you just have any view about the third Guy, young guy in-house being promoted and whether that maybe could be a, bu- a good thing for Ryan Day.
1: Well, as you mentioned, I thought astutely on the Rants pod, and you know it pains me to say that. Uh, <laughs> I do. That, that this feels different, right? Because Keenan Bailey has been someone that they've almost had to protect. He's been like Brian Hartline Jr. a little bit. like He's a guy that other people have known about and have made – entreaties to from what things we've heard like he could have gone somewhere else. Ohio state kept trying to give him things, giving him reasons to stick around. And he's been very involved in a tangible way in helping design the offense, which Doug you've talked about and I think are going to do more with here in, in the coming weeks. So this feels a little bit different than Corey Dennis and Parker Fleming. I would also say too, that the reason Nick Saban has a coaching legacy and uh, like an assistant coaching legacy a a coaching tree legacy is because everything that Nick Saban does is a legacy he has like a Diet Coke legacy on the on the podium or whatever like everything yeah. is a legacy you're Nick Saban like in order for Ryan Day to have like a legacy like no, I don't who how did John Cooper and Earl Bruce hire their assistant coaches like nobody probably knows or cares because those guys don't have this Legacy that led, you know, you don't get to say it as pick it out as this little piece of why you had all this amazing success. So if hiring these coaches, promoting these coaches, actually is a better way to say it, leads Ohio State to national success, then yes, that can be part of Ryan Day's legacy. If it doesn't, it'll be one of the reasons why that didn't happen.
2: I mean. Players have talked highly about Keenan Bailey all the time. and Kate Stover would tell you Keenan Bailey played a, a significant role in helping him make that transition to tight end and part of the reason why he's played so well, especially in the passing game. The wide receiver recruits will all literally tell you that Keenan Bailey played just as big of a role in recruiting them as Brian Hartline did, even if he couldn't go out until recently because they – needed a 10th member of the staff to be able to do that. When they would be on campus, they would be around Keenan Bailey, maybe more than Brian Hartline, just because of how, you know, recruiting rules are set up and stuff like that. So he's, but at the same time, Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields talked highly about Corey Dennis before he got that job. And so sure. If 15 years from now, Corey Dennis is the head coach of some group of five program and they're playing at a high level and, you know, Keenan Bailey's one of the best assistant coaches or a head coach somewhere. And it's and Parker Fleming, some elite coach. Then yeah, this is going to be some thing that in the aftermath, we're going to look back and go, man, Ryan Day was really a genius for hiring all those young head coaches, but also it could work the other way where 10 years from now, him hiring all these head coaches, all these young coaches who didn't have any experience instead of going outside of the program backfires. So I hate the term time will tell. I hate it so much. But that's where we're at with this. It's Ryan Day is a first time. Head, this is his first head coaching job, so maybe he just doesn't have a rolodex that's as big as most head coaches would have when they get jobs like this, and so it's put him in a position where he's also having to promote from within a little bit more often. But also, he probably looked at the Clemson model, who did a little bit of the same thing, promoted from within a lot. It, it's twenty six, right? It is. Like,
0: if you win, you're a genius. If you yeah. do it was it was a bad move. But also, but I also think that's. Letting people off the hook a little bit because it's acting like well whether you win or not is almost coincidental to the decisions that you make within your program and it's like no every single decision you make within your program increases or decreases your chances of winning and at some point I just I as I said I just that's three that's three internal promotions of very very short outside resumes at the very least right and so loyalty can be a great thing but that's three out of ten at the moment right now so. That's where we are. Let's go to a Jim Harbaugh question that I think was was interesting, and will lead us to a Ryan Day discussion. This is from the four one nine, and I appreciated this. Listen, for you guys who are texters, we I every time I do a call out, I go through everything and I grab and I always grab more than we use, and I, I we just can't get to all of them. But we see them, we see them, we see them. But we get a lot, and then sometimes you lose track. And if you think you have a great question or a great rant or a great idea and you didn't hear it on a pod or you didn't get a response to it or whatever and you bump it and say hey i sent this before i really think it's good bump it again this person bumped it and it got past me the first time or just didn't get through the mix and now we got it so thank you to the 419 can we please 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 talk about jim harbaugh sometime why is no one talking about this the dude was all-time hype When they brought him in, but led the program in disappointment after disappointment for his first five or six years, zero wins against the Buckeyes, and then two and four seasons where we really would have hung 100 on them. He was flat out embarrassing, deeply missing on expectations, and he was all hype. I remember telling my Michigan friends that I was ecstatic that they were they were renewing his contract because he was just such a horrible option, and it meant we would keep winning for as long as he was the coach. That was two years ago, two years. 24 months just half an olympics he should have been fired he was a miserable coach what happened what changed and then this person saying i bumped it um what the heck happened in the last two years our crazy fans are talking about day on the chopping block um when he has a great record and that guy was was junk for five or six years and now he's killing it pretty interesting and kind of weird right but hats off to the guy so Nathan, I, I wanted us to talk about Jim Harbaugh because I think it's a bigger conversation about when do you cut bait with a head coach? When do you let him still try to continue to find his best self? I think we talked about it a lot at the time. They did the thing. They made him or strongly encouraged. Basically, they cut his salary and they said, get a new staff. And he hired six or seven new assistant coaches and it transformed the program. I think he made great hires. I think those guys got after it. I think they did so, you know, getting rid of Don Brown and bringing in Mike McDonald and now Jesse Minter as a defensive coordinator was a huge change. He had been loyal to Don Brown. He said, enough is enough. They brought in a a bunch of new assistant coaches. What Sharon Moore has done on the offensive line has been spectacular. A lot of really good coaches that they brought in. And I think that's, I mean, that's a very clear line in the sand for this program, Nathan. But is it, what is there to be learned from this about how it might apply to any coach who maybe hits a stretch where it's not you're not peak, but you can still get it back. Is what do, what do we think of the overhaul
1: overall Harbaugh arc here? First of all, just to correct, like he wasn't trash. Like Michigan wasn't trash before this last two years. They weren't good in 2020 for sure during the COVID year, but they were like an eight nine win team. They were the. the and- the, the much better than they were with, with Hoke and Rich exactly. which like, yeah. much better. I, I kind of called them like the Iowa of the East, but I said it derisively because that wasn't good enough. That wasn't what Michigan was supposed to be. So I think part of it was, was uh, sort of protecting that baseline of, of performance and building off of that. But also, um, I think you got onto something, which is when you had a chance to make staff changes – there were a couple of instances where he thought outside the box a little bit. Like you're bringing in a guy to be your defensive coordinator who uh, last year um, who was a not even a, was he a position coach for the Ravens? Even at the time he had worked his way up. I can't remember if he got to that level, but certainly had not been a coordinator at any level before very young guy, but a guy that you're able to get at the right moment and, and plug him in and, 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 Things sort of took off, and I, I think those sorts of things are important to to kind of seize the moment when it's there. And yeah, his hand was forced for sure. So maybe it's also a a maybe it's also a lesson as much for administrators as it is for coaches to um you know to to know at the time because we had the discussion many different from many different angles like why is. Jim Harbaugh still at Michigan. Should Michigan get rid of Jim Harbaugh? Uh, is it good for Ohio State if Jim Harbaugh stays? And we kept coming back to like, well, who, if it's not him, then who? Like, if you're not going to, if it's a Michigan guy who's been to a Super Bowl and had success everywhere he's coached and he can't do it, what are you going to do? And there was a little bit of patience here, but the right kind of patience maybe where they made him do, they didn't let him do what we've seen happen at, I don't know, for instance, Iowa, where the head coach gets to, sort of act in autonomously and make really terrible staff decisions. And they exist in perpetuity at Michigan. They, they held him, uh, made him accountable a little bit and it paid off.
2: I think a combination of forcing him to do some things, but also a series of very fortunate events collided to sh- very much shift the momentum of the trajectory of the program, because no Michigan wasn't trash at all. They were a solid program. They just couldn't beat the good, good teams. But they were beating every. They were doing what they were supposed to do, but not going above and beyond, which was the whole point of how Doug at some point had reached the point of maybe he's their Jim Tressel, and now they need to go find their Urban Meyer. They got the guy who righted the ship, and now can they go find the guy who can take it to the next level? But I think I, yeah, I get it. Yes, if Ohio State would have played Michigan in 2020, they probably would have blown them out. But that's and maybe he loses his job after the game. Maybe he doesn't. It's it's more than just that. I wonder if Aiden Hutchinson doesn't get hurt in 2020, does he come back for a fourth year? Because now you've got a guy who was a borderline top 100 recruit who had been pretty good up to that point. Now, I don't think he would have been the number two pick in the draft or a Heisman, but I think he would have been a first round pick if he had had a quality 2020. And that's back on your roster for an extra fourth year when you weren't expecting that maybe. And, that, and yes, you made a great hire as a defensive coordinator, but also you've got this stud on your defense that maybe you weren't planning to have that year who is now here and has taken it up to a whole nother level. We keep talking about it. Why did Ohio State lose to Michigan? Because Aiden Hutchinson had a, fu- had a party in the backfield for 60 minutes and turned himself into a Heisman Trophy finalist. So little stuff like that. What if Aiden Hutchinson doesn't get hurt? He's healthy. He goes pro. And now when Ohio State plays Michigan, they don't have Aiden Hutchinson. And now it's just David Ojabo, who is good, but he's not Aiden Hutchinson. So it's not four sacks. And that's, that plays a big role for an offensive line who up to that point had kept CJ's job clean. So I, I just think of little things like that where, yes, they made him hire a new staff, but enough things aligned at the right time. And Michigan took advantage of it. And now they've, Harbaugh has taken this program to new heights where the playoff and competing for a national title is now the expectation.
0: Oh, I don't know if competing for the national title is the expectation. I think I think competing for a national title is a nice bonus. I think they're still in – we beat Ohio State mode. Oh. I don't think – honestly, I don't think anybody at Michigan is going to be like,
2: what? We That's what J.J. McCarthy said. No, he said. no, last,
1: I know.
2: Yeah, he, said, he, he said last year they were like that, where it's like beating Ohio State was enough, but now this year we want more than that. So I do think – Listen, I, and I do think the point that you made, Nathan, off the top is,
0: like, he hes he reached the Super Bowl. He wasn't a bad coach. He was never a bad coach. He couldn't get them over the top, which is why, like, I do think he couldn't win the game that he had to win. But he was winning, like, a lot of all the other ones, right? He's winning mm-hmm. 10 games a year. And if you're looking at right – and so then what did he do? Is like I do think they – he made some staff changes. I think he brought in some good people. He maybe made some tough decisions and then um, they kind of got like refocused on who they are. But I do think underneath of it was a foundation of being a good coach, right? It's not like Rich Rod. It's not like Brady Hooker. I'm like, yeah, this guy does not know what he's doing here. What are we doing? This is, he, he didn't know what he was doing. He was just a little nuts. Now I do think he, I think he very purposefully did all the crazy stuff. Well, maybe not all purposefully. But he was doing the crazy stuff, I think, maybe in service of something and maybe just being weird sometimes. But he's calmed down on a lot of that stuff as they've gotten better, right? Now, it's the third base thing last year, right? But that was also like puffing your chest up after a victory, and people do that sometimes. So I do think in the end, Nathan, that it is an expectation, I think, of you are good. And that Michigan, I think, deserves credit for like not bailing on him because he wasn't winning like the one or two games a year that they, they really wanted to win when he actually was doing a lot of good things. Right. Which is like kind of what Ryan day is doing a lot of good things. They just haven't beaten Michigan in the last two years, which is a problem. And they didn't beat Oregon last year, which was a problem. Right. But it's not like the program's a disaster. And so I do think there's some, some things here of like, listen, don't pull the rip cord too early. Like this is good football coaching here, but also demand, some accountability of like, you're good, but you're going to have to do something else to get a little better, right? Which I'm not saying that that means Ryan Day have to change over his whole staff this offseason, right? But what show us where you are making the incremental improvements. And so I do think the other thing too is that, you know, you look at JJ McCarthy, you look at Donovan Edwards, Aiden Hutchinson was a top 100 national recruit right? The level of talent matters, and they aren't recruiting quite like Ohio State yet, but as long as you're recruiting at a high level, you're going to give yourself an opportunity to beat very good teams because you have very good, talented players, and recruiting is a lifeblood of all of this. Michigan has been the second-best recruiting team in the Big Ten behind Ohio State. That was kind of true when they weren't winning the game, but it's propelling them now, but I do think, Nathan, in the end, the, the reason I wanted to talk about Jim Harbaugh is because I think he deserves credit. I think Michigan deserves credit, and it was the idea of You are good at this, but we need you to get a little out of your comfort zone to maybe get over the top. And I'm not saying that's where Ohio State is with Ryan Day, but I think this goes back to our Keenan Bailey discussion, Mm -hmm. 5% maybe. And it's not really about Keenan Bailey, but it's, you know, Jim Knowles, that's kind of like, hey, that's outside. That's outside. He didn't have no Jim Knowles at all. We're going to get the best guy, right? Justin Fry, he knew. Three internal promotions. Perry Eliano, I don't think he knew, but it's like he's the guy right down the road at Cincinnati. You know, it wasn't a huge stretch there. Are you, you know, listen, Jim Harbaugh hired Ron Bellamy, who was a high school coach in Detroit. He hired Steve Klingsdale from Kentucky, who was a guy with Ohio roots. You know, he's not hiring guys from Alaska, right? There's some familiarity there, but I don't think they were necessarily Harbaugh guys. So I think in the end, Nathan, it's, don't overreact, but also to the point you made about Kirk Ferentz, don't let a good football coach who is in charge, just do whatever is comfortable because sometimes you have to get uncomfortable to be great. And I think maybe it got uncomfortable at Michigan for a little bit. And then right at that moment, they found the right formula and here they are. And credit to everybody involved there. And it's just something to keep. That's not where Ohio State is right now with Ryan Day. It's not. But it's something to keep, I think, in the
1: back of your mind as you evaluate situations like this. It absolutely got uncomfortable. I mean, they literally went to him last, before last season and said, we are paying you too much money for what mm-hmm. you are winning. Like, it doesn't get much more uncomfortable than that. Like, it's a, it's a little bit of a slap in the face. Or it, at the very least, it's a publish, a public accounting of, of accountability. So I, I, I think that worked in this case. I think it gave somebody who was pretty far along in his career, not that he wasn't taking his job seriously, but hey, I, I imagine that makes you a little hungry or a little thirsty or whatever you want to put it. So that worked. I think that was important. But I also think that it, there was a time where it seemed like, a hot, like Michigan was settling into an identity of we're just, we're good but that's, we have a ceiling and that that identity, and you didn't really know what they were about on either side of the ball as much either. And now you have a team that in both ways, I'm using identity. Number one, the, the identity of achievement has risen, but you also know what Michigan, what the program is about now. And they have really gone head first into what they are as a team, building that offensive line and, and, and putting the weapons around that, letting that be kind of what leads things and building the defense up to be uh, more consistent than it was and you know what michigan football is about now and that had to be a conscious decision and a plan that got executed and they went out and executed it
0: i i do think i'm trying to it's hard to lump all this stuff together you look at sharon moore who was actually on the michigan staff before kind of like the revamping of the staff but he got a promotion because he had been the tight ends coach and then he became uh the offensive line coach but he came to michigan in 2018 and he had been the assistant head coach and the recruiting coordinator and the tight ends coach at Central Michigan. So he was like a good young coach in the MAC. He'd been an offensive lineman at Oklahoma. And I'm just trying to think. I'm not – it's hard to get specific on this. I'm trying to think of – I guess maybe Perry El- Eliano was the comparison there, Stephen.
2: Yeah. yeah, just because – I mean, but, I'm even looking from the, a recruiting I, standpoint. Like Sharon Moore, he played a role in Daxon Hill, J.J. McCarthy, Donovan Edwards, which is kind of – the Perry Eliano thing where it's, we want you to come do this, but also you're a hell of a recruiter, so come do that too. But, but that, that the, the idea is, like, where did they find that guy, right? So yeah.
0: he wasn't already on the staff, and he wasn't super established at a huge program already. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't Fleming or Bailey or Dennis, but he also wasn't really Justin Fry who was coming from UCLA. He yeah. wasn't Jim Knowles who was coming from Oklahoma State. He was a young guy – and I don't know. Maybe Jim Harbaugh did know him. I don't know the all the ins and outs in that. But he was like a a young guy in the MAC who was doing a good job. And Ron Bellamy was a high school coach in Detroit who was doing a good job. Who also happened and I'm to be just coaching. Try- <laughs> Donovan no, <Emerson>. I know. <laughs> okay. So, but like all this stuff, right? Yeah. All this stuff. Yeah. I'm just trying to think about Ohio State staff and the guys who got here, and. There's a lot of super established guys. Tim Walton's coming from the NFL. There's a lot of super established guys. And then there, there are these internal hires. But where is your diamond in the rough? I found this guy in the MAC. And he's never done it at yeah. this level, but he's been a full time assistant somewhere. And I just well, think
2: he's smart. And more so, importantly, they like, and they think again, it's Bailey. But but even then it's but, Bailey got but, but, Bailey was been in the support he's staff. He's and really inside. He was Urban Meyer support staff. It's not like Bailey got hired in twenty nineteen when Keenan Bailey's been there for a little bit. But but it's comfortable. It's yes, just it's more, comfortable because yeah. you know him more since you brought. But even with the, uh, the Bellamy, yeah, I am joking that he was also coaching Donovan Edwards and whatever that stuff happens all the time. So it's not just Michigan's not the first school to do that. But Urban Meyer kind of did it with Kerry Combs, this guy who was coached in high school. And he just kind of had an eye, even if it wasn't Ohio. It was this guy that he had an eye for, and then it—I mean, he hired him, and then the cornerback. We know what the cornerback. He, did, from he was. came
0: from Cincinnati. He was at Cincinnati. Okay, he was
2: high school to Cincinnati, to Cincinnati. then Cincinnati okay, to here. Cool, but the, the, still the so concept. Of, right, but the concept of it still stands. Where there's something there, and I see it, even if nobody else sees it, because he's at a lower level program, and maybe Perry Aliano is that. It's just that last year. He had the Thorpe award winner and the first cornerback taken off the board, so it kind of gets a little iffy there.
0: I, I just – Nathan, it just if they just hired somebody, it's like, why would you hire this guy? He's the smartest non-coordinator yeah. in the MAC. I asked everybody in the MAC, who's the smartest non-coordinator in the MAC? Because I don't know if I can get a non-coordinator. I don't know if I can get a coordinator to come here. But this is a guy – this guy, when I watch the way his position group plays, when I recruit against him, when I'm at clinics with him – that guy it, he just exudes competence and brilliance and person personality and i that guy's got something right and i'm just i'm just wondering i'm not saying that keenan bailey's not that i'm not saying that but keenan bailey's down the hall and so are yeah. you extending yourself are you extending yourself to go search every corner of the united states to find the best person that you don't know that you learn about by reputation. And and I'm um, I'm not saying that hiring Tim Walton from the NFL or hiring Perry Eliano after he coached Kobe Bryant and Sauce Gardner, I'm not saying all that's bad. I'm just saying.
2: Are you asking would he have I, hired Perry Eliano had Sauce Gardner and Kobe Bryant not happened last year? It's like, well, I, and I don't know enough about
0: Sharon Moore. I don't know. Maybe the Central Michigan had some guy that was like, oh, that guy's. Yeah. I don't know. But I don't think he coached a guy who was the number four pick in the draft, and like right. that's what got the attention to him. I think he got the attention by just being super competent at his job, regardless mm-hmm. of whether his players were NFL players or not. And I think Perry Aliano was a good hire, right? I do. I liked it at the time. I like it now. So that's. A, I'm just maybe I'm not saying it right, Nathan. But I just really liked the way Harbaugh went about revitalizing that staff and i'm not saying ohio state needs to clear anybody out and i'm not saying that Knowles, eliano fry and walton a year ago i'm not saying that wasn't good i'm just saying we're keeping our eyes and ears open for jim harbaugh changed his story at michigan feels like overnight and why which is what this texter asked why aren't we talking about jim harbaugh why it's like i I I think we we should talk about Jim Harbaugh because it's. I think you can learn some stuff from it, and I'm just keeping that in the back of my head, Nathan. That's all.
1: I guess the closest thing that day did to this was maybe Matt Barnes bringing him in from Maryland. Yeah, that was sort yeah. of an example like, hey, of it. We, we played against that guy. Mm-hmm.
0: Man, that guy's special teams were good. Let's hire that
1: guy. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah, that was like the closest, but it's been a, that's been a minute. That's now, you know, a few years removed from that and Matt Barnes has moved on. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, it's tricky because everybody has these qualifiers that they want to put on what you need. Like, well, we need an experienced guy or, well, we need an Ohio guy. And there's sort of a balance that you want on your staff of a lot of those different things. Right. You always want, I think somebody with a little bit of an Ohio slash alumni background and you want you want various things that all kind of work together but you probably I don't know what the next opening is going to be now that they've hired Bailey there may not be another one in this cycle but when they have if Tony Alford were to move on who do you look at as at running backs is that where you look to see um there's a mind that you want you know the the guy that they're going to be talking about like Eric bien someday can you get him on your staff um, ahead of time? Like, can you be out in front of that? I think that's also a mark sometimes of, of great programs is we talk about finding like diamond in the rough players, Chris Olave, et cetera, DeJuan Jones. I think sometimes you have to find them as coaches too, and get them before the rest of the world knows about them. And I think Keenan Bailey is going to help this offense.
0: I, I do. Mm-hmm. I, I do think Keenan Bailey is going to help Ohio state. So I, I really am not questioning that higher. I'm just, I'm just double checking on how you go about your business. In building the best anything for Ohio State football to maximize itself, so and I and I do think at the moment Jim Harbaugh, I think Jim Harbaugh and Michigan are maximizing themselves for what they are now. And maybe there's a next step out there. Maybe there is, but I do think JJ McCarthy and Donovan Edwards and some of the things you're doing in recruiting certainly help that, right? But and also, by the way, and Ohio State's been successful in in the portal, like some really targeted. Portal stuff like that. uh, Oluwatimi at center, like that's as good of a that's as good of a portal thing as you could ask for. That guy, like, is like the fulcrum of your entire offense. It was like coming from Virginia, Jonah Jackson times ten or something. So I mean, it's like you've got to be, you know, um, it's it's. I don't think anything has. There's nothing I don't think that Ohio State needs to be like jealous of from Michigan standpoint. Right. But I think you want to look at, and I don't think there's anything that they should copy. Right. And say, Oh, well, cause I mean, you talk about like, Oh, Michigan found its identity. Well, I think Ohio state has its identity. We know exactly what Ohio state football is and wants to be. And so does Ryan day. So, um, this, but I think you can always learn. I think you can always learn and be, a, be on the alert. So I think that's where they would be. Okay. That'll do it. That was long. We, we wanted to uh, get some good stuff from the, from the tech subscribers. And whenever we're kind of like, ah, what should we do for the pod? It's like, I don't know. We'll let the tech subscribers figure it out. And they always do. So thanks to you guys for sending in great questions. I wish we could have gotten to more. We will come back. We have something planned for you that I think should be fun. And then we're going to have uh, a bunch of things that we're going to learn from Ohio state players this week that we're going to talk about on the pod. And then we're going to start breaking down Georgia, Ohio state. So for now, go to cleveland.com slash OSU. Try the texts at 614-350-3315 and uh, make sure you're subscribed to Buckeye Talk so you don't miss anything. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.